Super-Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, by Michael Hudson. Chapter 14. Perfecting Empire Through Monetary Crisis, 1970-1971. The state incurs debts for politics, wars, and other higher causes and progress. The assumption is that the future will honor this relationship in perpetuity. The state has learned from the merchants and industrialists how to exploit credit. It defies the nation ever to let it go into bankruptcy. Alongside all swindlers, the state now stands there as swindler-in-chief. Jacob Burkhart, Judgments on History and Historians, Boston, 1958. Page 171. In May 1970, Secretary of the Treasury David Kennedy warned that if foreign countries did not make it feasible for the United States to increase its exports, Congress might restrict imports into the United States. Is it not the surplus countries, he asked, that have a special responsibility to take positive action towards their elimination? What Mr. Kennedy was asking was something wholly new in international relations. In essence, he was stating that as U.S. private capital continued to take over the industries and the companies of Europe and Asia, establishing a U.S. deficit in its balance of payments on capital account, the nations that were receiving these dollar inflows should increase their imports from the United States in amounts equivalent to the U.S. cost of seizing control of their enterprises if, in addition, the United States should continue to unbalance its payments position by military acts in any part of the globe, nations forced into a surplus position must expose their domestic industries to artificially sponsored competition from the export sector of the U.S. economy. Stated succinctly, the monetary investment and trading policies of the rest of the world were to be determined by whatever was happening in the domestic and international affairs of the United States, shifting responsibility for the U.S. payments deficit away from U.S. domestic and overseas policies on to Europe and Japan. Mr. Kennedy asserted that it was inconsistent for foreign countries to urge the United States to run a balance of payments surplus and then adopt policies that tend to thwart achievement of that very objective. Footnote 1. Trade bars abroad make U.S. restive. Congress may well curtail imports, Kennedy says. The New York Times, May 21, 1970. End of footnote 1. Mr. Kennedy's statement was not so much a plea for international cooperation as a threat that America would take whatever measures it thought necessary to compel Europe and Asia to accept the instructions that Mr. Kennedy imperiously was giving them. The United States was in dead earnest. America's proposed illegal textile quotas spur foreign threats of retaliation. Yet at the time, this hardly was sensed abroad, much less at home. Affairs, in fact, seemed to be going in the contrary direction. Nations had begun to resist U.S. economic aggression, or so it appeared. Japan was a case in point. In winter 1970, the State Department had requested it to impose voluntary quotas on its textile exports to the United States. 
Japan rejected this as flatly as the United States would have rejected a suggestion that it impose export quotas on its farm products. Wilbur Mills of Arkansas, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, thereupon prepared a bill calling for mandatory quotas on textile and footwear imports, along with other protectionist measures. Japanese officials threatened to enact trade legislation retaliating in kind against any U.S. impediments to its textile sales in the United States. By June, a half-hearted attempt at agreement was abandoned. On June 8th, President Nixon met with textile industry leaders and indicated that he would not oppose congressional proposals for quotas to roll back imports some 40% to their 1967-1968 level. Harking back to Mr. Nixon's election pledge to the textile industry in 1968, this policy was the opening of a major U.S. trade aggression against other countries. On June 25, 1970, Secretary of Commerce Marie Stans announced the administration's reluctant support of mandatory quotas on textiles, as called for in the Mills Bill, which had come before the House Ways and Means Committee. Mr. Stans concluded that despite the special escape clauses enjoyed by the United States under the GATT agreement, in many respects, we have been Uncle Sucker to the rest of the world. This set the stage for the posture of the abuse of the United States by its creditors that government spokesmen were henceforth to take. The Wall Street Journal found it ironic that on the same day that Mr. Stans was back in the Mills Bill, Federal Reserve Chairman Arthur F. Burns was in Seoul, commending Korea for its amazing record in expanding total exports. In a text prepared before the administration took its position, Mr. Burns said it is gratifying to see that the practical statesmen of the world are rediscovering such classic economic concepts as freedom of trade, adding that we owe a great deal to countries like the Republic of Korea, Nationalist China, Hong Kong, and Thailand that have most recently demonstrated how men operating in free markets can outperform totalitarianism. Footnote 2. Textile import quotas backed by administration. Wall Street Journal, June 26, 1970. End of footnote 2. The common market was outraged by the U.S. quota threats. U.S. negotiators turned down its proposed multilateral talks on world textile trade. In a divide-and-conquer strategy, they invited EEC spokesmen to Washington to discuss the problem bilaterally. On July 1, 1970, Edmund Wallenstein, the Common Markets Director of Foreign Trade, and Fernand Braun, Deputy Director of Industrial Affairs, arrived in Washington they received assurances that the United States did not intend to protect its textile markets against European producers, but only against those of the Far East. No quotas would be imposed on woolen goods and man-made textiles or synthetic filament fibers products more of European than of Japanese industries. Furthermore, the administration promised that it would press once again for removal of the American selling price tariff system to which Europe objected vigorously. This offer failed to mollify the common market negotiators. If textile quotas were enacted, they argued additional quotas would probably be imposed on shoes, steel, electronics goods, and other commodities as textile interests in Congress sought legislative support from other protectionist-minded industries. Furthermore, the Asian textiles diverted from the U.S. market probably would be channeled toward Europe. U.S. import quotas thus would render the EEC, a preferential trading area for exports from the Far East and the developing countries, unless the common market imposed import quotas of its own. 
Common market economists estimated that America's proposed textile and shoe quotas would cost the EEC some $500 million in annual sales to the United States. British economists computed that the U.S. trade legislation would cut their nation's sales by an equal amount. They spoke of retaliation against U.S. soybean and soy oil exports, which would make American farmers secondary victims of the U.S. textile quotas. The stage thus was set for the opening scenes of a confrontation drama between the United States and the rest of the world. A big 4GATT meeting of the United States, the Common Market, Japan, and Britain was convened in Geneva on July 31st and August 1st. The Common Market again threatened to retaliate against the Mills Bill if it were enacted and protested against any candidate for the U.S. presidency or other office seeker ever again promising to violate GATT rules in order to win an election. U.S. protectionists, however, surmised that European retaliation on the trade front would be futile. From where would Europe obtain her soybeans, they asked, if not from the United States? Europe's Threats of Financial and Trade Retaliation the Common Markets spokesman explained that EEC retaliation might not come in the area of foreign trade at all, but in international finance and investment. For instance, on the last day of 1969, Germany had done the favor of selling $500 million in gold to the U.S. Treasury. It had now accumulated more than enough dollars to repurchase this gold, and France quietly informed U.S. bankers that it was prepared to begin cashing in its dollar surpluses for gold on a monthly basis, as it had been doing regularly before May 1968. Germany and France refrained from such actions as long as the Mills Bill did not pass, partly to maintain their liquid official dollar balances as bargaining power, partly in recognition of the rapid growth of nationalist, protectionist sentiment in the U.S. Congress. What had been uttered, however, was the one unforgivable threat. For the first time since World War II, Europe threatened to use its financial strength against the United States. That could not be tolerated in America's official eyes, Europe was still a U.S. dependency. It could no more be permitted autonomous action than the American colonies were permitted such action by George III. The United States would not back down. Its assertion of imperial power did not permit it to do so. The issue had expanded from a pragmatic one of trade to the principled question of power and its exercise. On August 13, 1970, after five weeks of hearings, the House Ways and Means Committee approved the Mills Bill by a vote of 17 to 7. This was the first step towards its passage by the full House, and not a word of protest was heard from President Nixon or his cabinet. In addition to imposing quotas on textile and shoe imports, the bill proposed modification of the escape clause so as to facilitate additional import quotas and also a special tax deferment for exporters in the form of DISCS. Domestic International Sales Corporation. Industries seeking special tariff protection no longer would have to establish that imports were a major factor in their economic difficulties, but needed only to show that certain conditions were fulfilled. Imports must be rising rapidly, unit labor costs of the imported commodities must be below those in the United States, and imports either must represent 15% or more of U.S. consumption or else the domestic industry must be suffering from declining employment, hours worked, and earnings. Under these conditions, the president would be obligated to impose import quotas unless he gave Congress a detailed report on why it was not in the national interest to do so. The new legislation would put American tariff policy in the hands of the nation's protectionist 
Tariff Commission and would permit quotas to be imposed on autos, radios, and electronic products, bicycles, and other sporting goods, as well as on many other commodities. It was thus the equivalent of a declaration of trade war. The United States had thrown down the gauntlet to Europe and Asia. Either submit or retaliate under conditions where the appropriate technical maxim is don't hit the king unless you can kill him. In effect, America was asking the rest of the world just what it was going to do in response. On November 6th, the French political leader, Michel Poniatowski, Secretary General of the Independent Republican Party and close associate of Finance Minister Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, suggested that common market retaliation be focused on European subsidiaries of American multinational firms. He believed that a monetary and tariff war is foreseeable, even probable, between now and 1973. First, the United States would impose quotas on textiles. Then the European economic community would retaliate by limiting American sales of soybeans in Europe. Next, Congress would be outraged by such insolence from Europe and in turn would retaliate by restricting European sales in the United States of shoes and carpets. The EEC would respond by hitting American aircraft and electronics exports to Europe. Then the United States would attack European glass and steel. Finally, the Europeans would be provoked into imposing curbs on American industrial activities in Europe, which he suggested as the ultimate weapon in the economic arsenal. The war is foreseeable. Mr. Poinatowski declared, we must therefore do everything to avoid it. But if it breaks out, it will frankly not be the fault of Europe. Footnote 3. Europe maps retaliation if U.S. trade bill passes. The New York Times, November 7, 1970. Mr. Poniatowski's article appeared in the Paris Weekly, Les Economies. End of footnote 3. On November 19, 1970, the House of Representatives passed the Mills Bill by a vote of 215 to 165. President Nixon still said nothing, and his press secretary stated that he was keeping an open mind on matters. Even the usually docile British trade diplomats protested. Peter Tennant, Director General of the British National Export Council, announced, We have been too damn polite for too damn long. Footnote 4. Britain foresees a rift on trade, says retaliation is possible if U.S. passes trade bill. The New York Times, November 20th, 1970, end of footnote 4. Spain talked of cutting back purchases by state-controlled concerns. A large part of American exports to Spain is heavy machinery, and the bulk of this power stations, aircraft, and such is bought by state-run companies. Footnote 5. Europeans vexed by U.S. trade bill. Warning by Spain. The New York Times, November 21st, 1970. End of footnote 5. The bill would have threatened about $100 million of Spain's shoe exports to the United States, despite the fact that the military bases agreement signed earlier this year contained assurances that the United States would do whatever was possible to improve Spain's trade balance. Spain threatened to cut back its purchases of oil from U.S. affiliates abroad unless President Nixon provided special exemption for Spain from the quotas called for in the bill. The Mills bill passed to the Senate Finance Committee headed by Senator Russell Long of Louisiana, who promised to attach it to the Social Security bill then pending, supported by Senator Talmadge of Georgia. The trade bill received only one day of hearings, which were called on only 24 hours noticed. As matters turned out, however, the trade bill was not attached to the Social Security measure, but was superseded by subsequent U.S. trade and financial legislation. 
in simplest terms the official position of the united states was that it alone was exempt from and immune to multilateral agreements as is the typical posture of imperialists veiled and open threats to the american ukase must be countered even the mills bill was insufficient as a counter for in economic terms far more was at issue than imports and exports what lay at the root of matters was the persistence of american balance of payments deficits which the united states demanded must be financed by other countries at stake was power in the world if other countries could perpetually be bound by u s decisions of whatever character and for whatever purpose their autonomy would be negligible and their threats meaningless what was needed therefore was a showdown between the united states and non-communist europe and asia a confrontation that would make clear the location of power once and for all the world was by no means certain where power actually lay in terms of military capabilities vis-a-vis -vis the united states europe counted for little and japan for naught ultimate power therefore rested with the united states it was not ultimate power that was at issue however but the more subtle and less definable relative strengths of national and regional economies the widening disparity between europe and american economic strength only recently had begun to command general attention europe had kept quiet about the matter for understandable reasons the united states had blinded itself by its assumption that national economic health and size of gross national product were identities not measures of distinct and separate dimensions even the overseas deficits of the united states had alarmed few observers that blindness was passing however along with the blind spot of economic theory that had produced it within the united states slowly at first but with increasing acceleration the most serious disquiet began to be felt it expressed itself in what was to grow into a concerted private speculation by u s citizens and companies against the dollar funds fled the country led by speculative ventures of u s corporate treasurers against maintenance of the dollar's de facto parity with gold the summer nineteen seventy one dollar crisis forces up europe's exchange rates this currency and gold speculation reflected growing doubts that the united states could continue to dictate fundamental economic decisions to the rest of the world if it could not its foreign debts might overwhelm it these debts were euphemized throughout europe and asia by the expression surplus dollars in march nineteen seventy one the organization for economic cooperation and development oec d published a study warning that surplus dollars would continue to plague europe's monetary system at least throughout the year a six billion dollar u s payments deficit was projected for nineteen seventy one issued with u s blessing this inaccurately optimistic projection was a compliment to president nixon's announcement that a tax reduction might be necessary to stimulate the economy if unemployment remained over six percent by june of that year europeans strongly opposed this plan recognizing that a tax reduction would spill even more dollars into their markets as matters turned out the u s payments deficit amounted to six billion dollars in the first quarter alone followed by another six billion dollars in the second quarter in april the u s trade balance moved into deficit for the first month since nineteen sixty nine and remained in deficit thereafter movement out of the dollar accelerated into gold held abroad and into other currencies with the swiss franc and german mark being favored havens 
Germany's international reserves rose to $16.7 billion again from $3 billion from year-end 1970 and $9.6 billion from year-end 1969. U.S. strategists did nothing to stem this flight out of the dollar. The central banks of Holland, Belgium, and France retaliated by cashing in $422 million of dollars for U.S. gold. Of this sum, France accounted for $282 million, which it paid to the IMF to liquidate the balance of its borrowings made during the May 1968 crisis. Still, the Nixon administration did not tighten controls over U.S. capital movements. On Tuesday, May 4th, $1.2 billion in dollars flowed into Germany to be converted into marks, followed by another $1 billion in the first hour of trading on Wednesday, May 5th. That brought German reserves to more than $19 million, at which point the central bank closed its foreign exchange markets pending a decision on how to resolve its dilemma. Discussions were opened with the other common market countries and with the United States on how the situation might be handled without bringing about a breakdown of the international financial system. On Friday, May 7th, John Connolly, newly appointed U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, indicated that the nation would emphatically not cooperate with Europeans by slowing the flow of dollars into foreign countries. He suggested instead that foreign countries step up their purchases of special U.S. Treasury securities and buy U.S. common stocks as a means of recycling their dollars to the United States. Footnote 6, Connolly says U.S. plans no shift in money policy. The New York Times, May 8, 1971. End of footnote 6. The New York Times reported a few days later, Washington concedes that its balance of payments priorities are pretty low. Europeans term the policy one of benign neglect. And in the corridors of the international meetings that have been taking place in Paris and Brussels, they say that President Nixon is guided by only one thing, to get re-elected in 1972. An editorial in the London Financial Times said that if the policy continues to be benign neglect, it will be up to the nations of Europe to take matters into their own hands. Footnote 7, Inside Common Market, Monetary Friction, The New York Times, May 11, 1971, End of Footnote 7. A group of prominent U.S. economists, including Paul Samuelson, Milton Friedman, and two former heads of the Council of Economic Advisers, Walter Heller and Arthur Okun, asked that Germany float the mark and that other countries follow suit. That was the exact opposite of the policy recommended by the European Community's Council of Ministers in its 1970 Werner Commission report recommending plans to align the currencies of the inner six more closely with each other. West Germany's economic minister Karl Schiller proposed that all common market central banks would stop acquiring dollars for an interim period. But while floating against the dollar, the currencies of the six would maintain a fixed relationship with one another. Footnote 8. Common Market Drafting a Plan in Money Crisis, The New York Times, May 9, 1971. On Mr. Schiller's plan, see also Bonn Revives Idea of Six Nation Float, The New York Times, June 16, 1971. For the Werner Report, see the URL available at the bottom of page 371. End of footnote 8. Offering to provide German marks for a common market reserve fund to tide the weaker currencies of France and Italy over the transition period, he suggested that such a fund could be the beginning of a federal reserve system for Europe. 
France did not wish to see Germany dominate the proposed monetary union. It announced that it would boycott the monetary union discussions as long as the mark floated. Italy also opposed a floating common market currency, fearing that a more expensive lira would force Italy to borrow increasingly from its common market partners, especially from Germany. For the time being, proposals to establish an EEC monetary union, the equivalent of a central bank for common market Europe, had to be held in abeyance. A consistent U.S. objective since 1945 was to open Europe's markets wide to U.S. farm exports. The common market's agricultural policy prohibited this, but its farm policy depended on fixed exchange rates among the currencies of the inner six. The outflow of funds from the United States, especially into the German mark, made maintenance of parities between the mark and the French franc impossible. The common market's agricultural policy the indispensable foundation for harmonizing trading interests between France and Germany, and hence the foundation of the common market itself, thus was brought into peril, threatened by the deluge of foreign currency largely American that flooded into Germany. Economic power in its reality was being demonstrated. One of America's principal aims had been and would remain the rupture of the agricultural subsidy policy within the EEC. For the moment, direct intervention by the U.S. government against Europe was not necessary. So massive had been the flight from the dollar that Europe's currencies began to be floated even before the U.S. government demanded that their parities be adjusted upward. On Sunday, May 9, 1971, Germany and Holland floated their currencies, Switzerland revalued its franc by 7%, and Austria increased the value of its shilling by 5%. These moves were accompanied by plans for special capital controls to limit euro-dollar borrowings by Americans, as well as by European firms. On June 1st, the Bundesbank increased reserve requirements on foreign bank deposits to twice those required for domestic deposits. On July 2nd, German firms were obliged to make cash deposits with the Bundesbank to compensate for foreign currency borrowings made by them in the euro-dollar market. It thus was not the United States that imposed capital controls to stop the flight from the dollar, but Germany to stop the flight into the mark. These European revaluations were the quintessence of U.S. strategic objectives. Their effect was to increase the prices of German, Dutch, Swiss, and Austrian goods in the U.S. and world markets, making U.S. exports correspondingly more competitive. The President's economists have privately hailed the floating of the mark as a victory for United States policy, which they dislike calling benign neglect because it upsets foreigners. If the mark finally settles at a higher exchange rate, this would help America's trade position by making our exports cheaper and imports dearer. Footnote 9, Monetary Challenge, Currency Crisis Highlights Problems of Rate Flexibility and Trade Policy. The New York Times, June 9, 1971. End of footnote 9. The fragmenting of parodies was treated as Europe's problem, not that of the United States. On May 10th, an official U.S. Treasury statement observed that foreign exchange markets appeared to be adjusting in orderly fashion and reiterated that no immediate action by the United States is called for. Footnote 10. No U.S. currency move set now. The New York Times, May 11, 1971, into footnote 10. Europe was compelled to choose between absorbing more and more U.S. dollars or stopping the purchase of dollars and letting European currencies appreciate still further, bestowing even more price advantage on U.S. exports. Officials continued to maintain a polite silence about events that imposed difficult choices in Europe but no real problems, at least for the time being, for the United States. But there was no doubt that some officials were positively pleased by the weekend outcome. Footnote 11. Ibid. End of footnote 11. 
1970 Nobel Economics Prize winner Paul Samuelson typified the attitude of nationalistic U.S. economists telling United Press International that the outcome of the recent crisis was a very good thing, not a defeat for the dollar. This is a step in the right direction of equilibrium. It is good for the dollar because, in my judgment, the dollar is overvalued. He said he was especially pleased that the Netherlands had joined West Germany in letting its currency float and added that he wished France had done the same thing. He laughingly expressed the hope for a healthy little crisis in Japan leading to an upward floating of the yen. Paul McCracken Chairman of President Nixon's Council of Economic Advisers was quick to reject a complaint by some European officials that United States policies were responsible for the dollar flows that have rocked the monetary system. This view, raised in the Economic Policy Committee of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, seemed lopsided. If two people are out of step, it is not automatically clear who is out of step, he said at a news conference later. Let's not look for villains. Each nation has to look out for its own economy. Footnote 12 European foreign exchange traders await trend. U.S. denies responsibility. The New York Times, May 12, 1971. End of footnote 12. Senator Javits capped matters by teaming up with Wisconsin's representative, Henry Roos, to introduce a joint resolution asking President Nixon to consider calling for an international monetary conference. In a Senate speech, Mr. Javits proposed a formal end of convertibility of foreign-held dollars into gold and more flexibility of currency exchange rates. Footnote 13. European step-up dollar pressure, monetary inquiry urged. The New York Times, May 13, 1971. End of footnote 13. The United States began its official intervention in the power struggle over currency values by demanding on may 17 1971 that japan revalue the yen footnote 14 Connolly is firm on dollar policy the new york times may 18 1971 end of footnote 14 pressure has been building up to revalue the yen upward but as long as the yen stays pegged at 0.27777 united states cents the administration's economists cannot regard the recent crisis as having been truly constructive. The United States Treasury has little liking for this policy of revaluation via crisis. Officials fear that it aggravates hostility between America and its trading partners and reveals the weakness of the dollar, thus exposing the dollar to attack. Footnote 15. Monetary Challenge. The New York Times, June 9, 1971. End of footnote 15. U.S. officials went so far as to threaten Japan with a special unilateral tariff restricting certain categories of Japanese exports to the United States if Japan did not revalue the yen. It was reported that one very high official made known his belief that the yen is probably undervalued by as much as 20%. The imposition of a special duty on goods from only one country through a unilateral determination by the United States as distinct from the International Monetary Fund that the country's currency is undervalued, could have grave repercussions for both the world trading rules and the monetary rules. Footnote 16. A special tariff on Japan weighed. U.S. considers a new duty on all goods unless yen is revalued upward. The New York Times, May 24, 1971. End of footnote 16. Japan at first refused to revalue the yen to a higher parity. 
His officials pointed out that their country's trade surplus with the United States was not simply a problem of relative prices, but of differing production structures that would be cured partially by a renewed upswing in the domestic Japanese economy. Footnote 17. Japanese pondered trade imbalance. The New York Times, June 19, 1971. See also Japan firm on yen, Ibid, May 28, 1971. And Japan vows not to revalue yen, Ibid, May 18, 1971. End of footnote 17. In place of revaluation, Japan began to dismantle the capital controls that had been in effect since World War II and undertook an eight-point program including import liberalization, preferential tariffs to the developing nations, tariff cuts, capital liberalization, removal of non-tariff barriers, promotion of economic cooperation, normalization of exports, and flexible manipulation of fiscal and monetary policies. Beginning July 1, 1971, Japanese citizens were permitted to buy foreign securities and further capital liberalization moves were scheduled for August. In addition, Japan capitulated to U.S. interests by unilaterally restraining textile exports to the United States for a period of three years, beginning July 1st. Other Asian countries followed suit by reducing their own textile sales, starting with Taiwan and South Korea, imposing voluntary export quotas on their producers. The result was that although the Kennedy Round seemed to be cutting tariff rates, a new protectionist device has been invented which gets around all international prohibitions and domestic inhibitions, and which is compatible with an official posture of unalterable opposition to quotas, i.e., the so-called voluntary quota, ostensibly imposed by the exporting nation itself on its own domestic producers. Thus, liberal consciences are assuaged, while a particularly harmful form of restriction is spreading that the exporter's restrictions are imposed under the threat that the exporter will otherwise use compulsion and that the voluntary character is a myth does not seem to matter. Footnote 18. Ilsa Mintz, U.S. Import Quotas, Costs, and Consequences, Washington, D.C., 1973, page 1F, end of footnote 18. Foreign governments could not claim ground for tariff retaliation against these voluntary quotas, inasmuch as the reduction of exports to the United States was, after all, voluntary. To be sure, the new trade barrier violated Article 11 of GATT, which laid down that no prohibitions and restrictions other than duties, taxes, or other charges, whether made effective through quotas, import or export licenses, or other measures, shall be instituted or maintained by any contracting party on the importation of any product of the territory of any other contracting party or on the exportation or sale for export of any product destined for the territory of any contracting party, italics added. The formulators of the GATT agreements may well have had voluntary quotas in mind inasmuch as they were first used by the Japanese in the late 1930s before being rediscovered and reimposed by the United States in the mid-1950s. As early as 1963, they covered about 27% of Japan's exports to the United States. Footnote 19. John Lynch, Toward an Orderly Market, an Intensive Study of Japan's Voluntary Quota in Cotton Textile Exports, Tokyo, 1968, pages 77 to 94, quoted in Mintz, U.S. Import Quotas, page 20. See also Mintz, Ibid, page 51F, end of footnote 19. These upheavals also highlighted the link between financial and military power. 
It had come to light that the United States threatened implicitly to withdraw its troops from West Germany three years ago if the German Central Bank did not renounce its rights to convert surplus dollars into American gold. The link between the troops and gold has always been assumed in international monetary circles. An interview published in Der Spiegel, the West German magazine, has now provided some of the details and the specific circumstances. The interview with Dr. Carl Blessing, president of the Bundesbank, he died April 25th, takes on particular significance because of the crisis over surplus dollars in Europe, most of them in West Germany, and the new moves in the Senate to pull the American forces out of that country. Footnote 20, U.S. threat reported. The New York Times, May 12, 1971, end of footnote 20. In the wake of the currency crisis, Senator Mike Mansfield proposed on May 11, 1971, that the United States cut its European troop commitments by more than half from 310,000 to 150,000 men in order to conserve the dollar outflow. Footnote 21, Mansfield asks, 50% cut in U.S. forces in Europe. The New York Times, May 15th, 1971. End of footnote 21. This suggestion was in direct opposition to the military strategy outlined by President Nixon in his State of the World message delivered the preceding February. By May 13th, the Nixon administration ruled out any compromise in its fight to defeat the Mansfield move. Senator Scott of Pennsylvania told reporters that the administration would not accept any alternative that would have the effect of Congress determining the foreign policy of the United States toward NATO. Footnote 22, Nixon firm. In fight to bar U.S. troop cut in Europe, the New York Times, May 14, 1971. End of footnote 22. The Nixon administration was firm in its decision, for affairs were going exactly as it wished. Apparent weakness of the dollar with corresponding firming of other currencies was one of its objectives. The Mansfield Amendment, designed to slow the outflow of dollars, contradicted official policy to accelerate the outflow and force the central banks of other countries to pick up the short-term debt of the United States by including this debt among their reserve banking assets. If this did not occur, the world could not be forced to adopt the U.S. dollar as its central banking currency without regard for the inadequacy of the gold cover. If they did accept the dollar in this role as the world's monetary reserve currency, the $61 billion in overseas debt of the United States would cease to exist for all practical purposes, at least as a debt that was expected to be paid. The Nixon administration was playing one of the most ambitious games in the economic history of mankind, but it was beyond the comprehension of the liberal U.S. senators, and it did not appear in the world's economic textbooks. The simple device of not hindering the outflow of dollar assets had the effect of wiping out America's foreign debt even while seeming to increase it. At the same time, the simple utilization of the printing press, that is, new credit creation, widened the opportunities for penetrating foreign markets by taking over foreign companies. August 15th and its aftermath. The policy was formalized on August 15, 1971. Upward adjustment of foreign exchange rates had not gone far enough to suit the administration. Foreign countries had submitted to the U.S. aegis, but to make their submission more absolute and irreversible, President Nixon suspended all further sale of U.S. gold to foreign central banks. Henceforth, the $61 billion of liquid debt owed to foreigners would be paid only in the form 
of other paper evidences of debt. By suspending gold payments, the United States was, in effect, repudiating its foreign debt. There was a devious legal aspect to this maneuver. The articles of the IMF that defined currency convertibility did not require convertibility into gold, but into gold or U.S. dollars at their gold parity of 1944, i.e. $35 per ounce. There was no requirement in the IMF articles that the United States, in fact, and forever must continue to buy and sell gold at this price. That was obviously understood when the IMF was founded, but it had not been spelled out. The wording as written referred simply to a measure of valuation. Technically, the convertibility of other currencies could be construed as convertible into paper dollars, and this was how the Nixon administration construed the rule. Inclusion of the U.S. short-term debt among the monetary reserves of foreign central banks thus satisfied all international legal requirements pertaining to gold reserves and the settlement of international payments imbalances. One subtlety of this situation was that speculators could earn a profit by buying foreign currencies for dollars in the firm expectation that the U.S. government would force up the value of foreign currencies. This profit was guaranteed because the government of the United States required a massive outpouring of dollars into other currencies in order to further its foreign investment and export policies, forcing upward the exchange rates of other currencies vis-a-vis -vis the dollar in the process. To the U.S. government, this was a cost-free exercise, the only effort involved being that of creating dollars faster. Speculation against the dollar, in fact, had become the official international policy of the United States. It no longer involved an economic risk once gold payments were suspended. Phase one of America's imperial monetary design was thus completed. Foreign currencies had been forced upward against the dollar, effectively supporting U.S. exports and minimizing U.S. imports to the extent that relative domestic and import prices were affected. Limitations were imposed on the export policies of certain nations and their official controls over capital movements weakened. Most important, the foreign debt of the United States was effectively repudiated. Even this was not deemed sufficient, however. The revaluations of foreign currencies had not gone as far as the administration desired. That is to say, the competitive ability of foreign countries in U.S. and world markets on the basis of product prices still was too high for American comfort. To force these currencies up still further, President Nixon imposed a 10% surcharge on U.S. imports, not already limited by trade quotas. This unilateral surcharge, the government announced, would remain in effect until foreign countries, on a selective basis, revalued their currencies to the extent desired by the United States. Other limitations on their ability to export to the United States were spelled out as part of the price they would have to pay for removal of the surcharge. Export bounties in the form of tax rebates were granted to U.S. exporters, while wage and price controls were imposed on the domestic economy. Faced with these aggressive economic policies, the nations of the world capitulated, France again being the sole significant exception. The 10% import surcharge negated all the tariff cuts reciprocally negotiated by the United States since the end of World War II. The combination of the import surcharge and investment tax credit create a 22% price barrier for other nations seeking to sell capital goods to American companies. In addition, prices of foreign-made capital goods have been further increased in some cases by the upward revaluation of national currencies. Footnote 23, Economic Analysis, Big Stakes at Issue as Group of Ten Meets, The New York Times, September 15, 1971, End of Footnote 23. 
Administration spokesmen applauded foreign revaluations of from 15 to 20%, a set of quantum leaps that would have raised the total protection under the new U.S. program to the 37 to 42% range. The GATT declared the United States in violation of its rules and announced that other member countries had the right to retaliate. This did not save Japan. After two weeks of resistance, from finally having to float the yen on August 27th, after the Bank of Japan was forced to absorb $4 billion in dollar inflows at existing dollar-yen parities, the yen immediately jumped by 5%. Revaluation of the yen was deemed urgent by U.S. strategists on the ground that European countries will be more amenable to accepting some competitive disadvantage through higher rates for their own currencies now that they know Japan will accept a similar handicap. Footnote 24. Europe welcomes move. Dollar trading is mixed. The New York Times, August 28, 1971. End of footnote 24. A week later, on September 6th, the common market indeed found itself obliged to follow suit by floating its currencies, although still intervening in an attempt to limit their appreciation against the dollar. At a meeting of the Group of Ten on September 15th, Treasury Secretary Connolly said blandly for the television cameras as he left the afternoon meeting, we had a problem and we are sharing it with the world, just like we share our prosperity. That's what friends are for. Footnote 25. 13 billion gain sought to spur payments to U.S. Connolly issues challenge on improving balance as group of 10 meets. Europeans skeptical. The New York Times, September 16, 1971. End of footnote 25. He demanded that the rest of the world guarantee the annual $13 billion improvement in the U.S. balance of payments that the United States had been insisting on during the earlier GATT and IMF negotiations described in chapters 10 and 11. At this point, the dollar had fallen by 2.9% against the pound sterling, 6.4% against the yen, 6% against the Canadian dollar, and 5.7% against the Dutch gilder. That still was not enough, U.S. monetary representatives insisted. If the United States were to relax its import controls, foreign countries would have to increase their currency values by some 10 to 20 percent. To help encourage such shifts, U.S. officials leaked an IMF study estimating that on the average, foreign currencies should appreciate by about 10 percent, Relative to the dollar with the yen rising 15% and the German mark 12%, the Canadian dollar 11%, and the pound sterling 7%. Footnote 26. Report on IMF plan lifts currencies. The New York Times, September 24th, 1971. End of footnote 26. The IMF study was based on the assumption that the exchange rate changes would have to be large enough to restore equilibrium to the United States balance of payments at full employment. Footnote 27, dollar devaluation, most pressing issue at IMF talks is not whether but how large it will be. The New York Times, September 29th, 1971, end of footnote 27. In other words, foreign countries must accept increased unemployment at home resulting from loss of their export markets to U.S. producers in order that full employment could be fostered in the United States. The double standard of international diplomacy pursued by the United States 
thus was laid bare for all to see what distressed european diplomats more than any other demand was american insistence that the common market weaken its agricultural program by opening its markets to u s producers at the expense of europe's farmers we are interested in the whole package asserted mr connolly insisting that currency changes trade liberalization and sharing of american international aid and defense obligations should all be discussed in connection with lifting the surcharge footnote twenty eight group of ten fails to find accord on dollar crisis the new york times september seventeenth nineteen seventy one end of footnote twenty eight american antipathy toward the eec's agricultural policy had become all the more pressing as it appeared certain that england would join the common market by january first nineteen seventy three that would mean a loss of five hundred million dollars in u s grain exports if england were to shift grain purchases from the united states to europe as required under eec rules american officials also reiterated their long-standing antipathy toward extending associate membership status to non-common market countries on the eve of the group of ten meeting the u s commission on trade published its recommendations in a report entitled strategy for the seventies authored largely by peter g peterson the report singled out the adverse effects on u.s exports of the european community's common agricultural policy and preferential trade arrangements we should seek a commitment to the elimination of illegal preferences assurances that no further impairment of our agricultural trade interests will occur in the enlargement negotiations and a commitment on liberalization of the common agricultural policy as part of the negotiations on longer-term issues footnote twenty nine summary of the recommendations of the commission on trade the new york times september nineteenth nineteen seventy one end of footnote twenty nine simultaneously the common market issued a position paper at brussels calling for a united front against the united states at the group of ten meeting to start the following day realizing that if the present monetary difficulties continued too long they would raise undoubted dangers for the good functioning of the community particularly the common agricultural policy the council asked the commission to draw up a special report on the consequences of the present situation on the functioning of the agricultural common market and confirmed the mandate given on august nineteenth to the monetary committee and the committee of central bank governors to seek as soon as possible methods enabling a stabilization of the community's exchange relations footnote thirty common market agrees to resist u s on dollar six finance ministers ask america to devalue the new york times september fourteenth nineteen seventy one end of footnote thirty france as usual took the lead in opposing the u s demands on august eighteenth it had announced that it would neither revalue nor float the french franc relative to the dollar president georges pompidou at his september twenty third press conference pointed out that to arrive at an immediate solution would entail the risk i am convinced of leading the partners of the united states into exorbitant concessions and would finally render impossible a balanced solution footnote thirty one france rejects concession to u s the new york times september twenty fourth nineteen seventy one into footnote thirty one the ten percent import surcharge he said was just one element in the whole a big stick that might possibly be transformed into a carrot if only one is disposed to play the role of the donkey which is not our intention 
he demanded an outright devaluation of the dollar in terms of gold. It hardly was surprising when the group of ten meeting adjourned without any agreement, and American officials turned to exert pressure on the Far East first. They asked Japan to emulate West Germany and agreeing to buy U.S. arms to offset the approximately $650 million annual U.S. military expenditure in Japan. Japanese officials and some American officials argue that Japan is not getting a free ride at all. They note that the American military has rent-free use of thousands of acres of Japanese property. One estimate is that this saves the United States $450 million a year. These officials also argue that much of the American money is being spent more for the strategic defense of the United States than for the defense of Japan, and they point out that a large part of the $650 million, some say half, is spent not on defense, but on Japanese goods to stock American military post exchanges. Footnote 32. Japan urged to buy arms, help pay for U.S. troops. The New York Times, September 10, 1971. End of footnote 32. Furthermore, Japan already was spending 100 to $120 million annually in the United States to buy armaments. American policy was just as rough toward South Korea and other major Asian textile exporters. In mid-September, the United States gave South Korea until October 15th to impose mandatory quotas, slowing its annual export growth of woolens and man-made fiber products to 11% in 1972, 10% in 1973, and 9% in 1974. South Koreans had insisted on an annual increase of 23%, maintaining that anything below that level would seriously hamper their third five-year economic plan due to start next year. Footnote 33, U.S. gives Seoul a textile ultimatum, The New York Times, September 23, 1971. End of footnote 33. By October 1st, however, South Korea gave in to U.S. demands effective retroactively to July 1971. Footnote 34. South Korea plans U.S. pact. The New York Times, October 1st, 1971. End of footnote 34. On October 15th, U.S. trade negotiators also threatened Japan with even more restrictive textile curbs if it did not impose controls of its own. Footnote 35. U.S. gives Japan plan on textiles. Tokyo told to accept curbs or face quotas on October 15th. The New York Times, October 1st, 1971. End of footnote 35. The Sato government was accused by the Japan Textile Foundation of suffering a humiliating agreement with the United States threatening Japan's two million textile workers with unemployment. Footnote 36. Textile makers defy Tokyo government. The New York Times, October 9, 1971. End of footnote 36. But Japan capitulated, agreeing to limit growth in textile sales to the United States to only 5% annually in exchange for the United States lifting its import surcharge on wool and synthetics. Footnote 37. Japan agrees to restrict flow of textiles into U.S. Surcharge on them ends. The New York Times, October 16, 1971. End of footnote 37. Taiwan and Hong Kong were browbeaten into signing similar agreements. Industrial leaders predicted that the agreement would mean the loss of some 300,000 jobs in Japan. All four opposition parties issued statements attacking the government for initiating the agreement. 
In part, payment, Japan regained control of Okinawa, whose return to Japan the U.S. Senate had held up, pending satisfactory outcome of the textile negotiations. World trade thus was becoming more bellicose than at any time since the 1930s. Europe's Autumn 1971 Collapse by the end of October 1971, Europe seemed to be heading into a recession in part because of the U.S. tariff policy. Stock market prices on the French bourse had fallen by 15% since August 15th. British unemployment stood at a post-war high of 900,000 and was soon to exceed 1 million, while retail prices had risen more than 10% from a year earlier. Industrial production was stagnant or declining throughout Europe, principally as a result of the uncertainties inflicted by the United States. The Nixon administration did not help matters by announcing that it would keep the import surcharge as a bargaining lever until substantial improvement in the U.S. trade balance had been achieved. Denmark retaliated on October 19th by imposing a 10% import surcharge of its own, and the threat of a world tariff war began to appear real. Matters were not helped by the United States negotiating special exemptions from the surcharge for Canada and Mexico, along with proposals by Mr. Connolly for a selective lifting of the surcharge for West Germany because it has allowed its mark to float upwards to a realistic new parity with the dollar. Footnote 38. Denmark plans surcharge as protectionist measure. European trading partners critical. Common market retaliation against U.S. is said to be a French goal. The New York Times, October 20th, 1971, end of footnote 38. This was part of the emerging U.S. strategy to make a separate deal with West Germany and use it as a weapon against other common market countries. France's response was to insist that the franc would not be allowed to appreciate against the dollar so that the dollar devaluation would give it a competitive edge against Germany, whose mark had now soared about 9% against the dollar. Balance of payments deficits traditionally have been the setting for increased protectionism, and America's experience proved no exception. On November 4th, the Senate Finance Committee voted to give the President authority to increase the tariff surcharge to 15% if the U.S. international position were found to be threatened and to extend it to cover all quota and non-tariff items that had been exempted from the August 15th surcharge. The President also was empowered to impose import quotas. Footnote 39. Import Authority for Nixon Backed. The New York Times, November 5th. 1971, end of footnote 39. At this point, the dollar had declined by only 4% on a weighted average basis. At the GATT meetings in late November, U.S. negotiators used this fact to press for special trade favors quite apart from further devaluation. They were turned down by the common market countries, joined by Britain and Ireland. The United States also pressed once again for increased access to Europe's food markets and the Common Market Executive Commission once again pointed out that the 10% import surcharge had the effect of doubling effective U.S. tariff rates to 19.3%, affecting some $5.8 billion worth of common market exports. U.S. delegates to a group of 10 meeting in Rome on November 29th announced that the United States would rescind the import surcharge and its allied by American tax credits if foreign countries appreciated their currencies by an average of 11%. 
The U.S. monetary negotiator Paul Volcker of the Treasury Department brought agricultural and trade specialists to the meeting to press for what he called a big-package approach, but met solid European resistance. Finally, President Nixon and U.S. economic strategists met with a French mission headed by President Pompidou in the Azores on December 13th through 14th and reached a monetary agreement that was announced in Washington at the end of the week at a group of 10 meeting held at the Smithsonian Institution known as the Smithsonian Conference, referred to in this book's preface and Chapter 15. First of all, as of Monday, December 20th, Foreign currencies were appreciated by the 11% figure demanded by the U.S. Treasury. The Japanese yen increased by 14.4%, the German mark 11.9%, the Belgian franc and Dutch guilder by 10.4% each, the British pound and French franc 7.9% each, and the Italian lira by 7%. The Canadian dollar continued to float and was up 8%. In addition, the IMF rules were changed to permit wider parity bands of two and one quarter percent on either side of parity. This meant that the U.S. dollar could decline by an additional two and one quarter percent, and other currencies could appreciate by a similar amount, so that a further four and one half percent shift in exchange rates could take place without consultation with the IMF. The U.S. representatives also agreed to ask Congress to authorize an increase in the official price of gold to $38 an ounce. Getting congressional approval for this agreement, the Wall Street Journal observed, might prove difficult inasmuch as some congressman is just bound to come up with a silly amendment like, for instance, requiring everybody to pay off all their World War I debts first. Every now and then Congress does take a keen interest in those World War I debts, at least enough interest anyway, to keep the Treasury toting up the amount, thanks to accrual of unpaid interest. As of mid-1970, the debts totaled attempting $17,155,745,768.68. Footnote 40. Dollar devaluation, it could be tricky. The Wall Street Journal, December 15, 1971. End of footnote 40. President Nixon agreed to rescind his import surcharge and extend his investment tax credit to cover capital goods of foreign manufacture in exchange for congressional approval of the proposal by Senators Javits and Hatfield to legalize gold ownership for U.S. citizens. The common market responded by increasing its agricultural tariffs and price support levels to prevent the United States from gaining any special farm export advantages from the dollar's devaluation expected to result from these new policies. Yet Europe's and Asia's capitulation was total. The world henceforth would trade on terms dictated by the United States, whose massive foreign debt had become a bludgeon to beat the world into submission. In so doing, however, the United States was impelling the world on a path that threatened to lead toward a third force, an enlarged common market embracing virtually the whole of Europe, with collective industrial capacity greater than that of the United States, and with larger gold reserves, and with some $43 billion of accumulated purchasing power for U.S. capital goods and industrial products. If Europe so determined, these assets could be employed to accelerate its own industrial growth at the expense of the United States. True, the United States would be paid for such exports, but... 
such payment would constitute solely a reduction in U.S. liabilities to foreigners. If European central banks cashed in their Treasury bill holdings to cover their trade deficits with the United States, these securities would be thrown onto America's own financial markets, threatening to force up interest rates if the Federal Reserve did not simply monetize the bond sales or increase domestic taxes. The possibility thus was raised, in principle, that it would be the U.S. economy that might end up being squeezed. The rate at which this transformation of U.S. paper liabilities into industrial exports might occur remained to be demonstrated. That it would come about seemed probable, as countries set out during the 1970s to create a new international economic order. The world economy was fracturing, threatening the United States with a prospect that for the first time in its history it might have to pay the equivalent of economic tribute abroad for the military activities that had been responsible for its balance of payments deficits in the 1950s and 1960s. In this alternative scenario, America's success in forcing other nations to pay the costs of its overseas wars would prove empty. The United States would face a future of having to yield up the real products of its industry in exchange for the paper it had printed so assiduously and had forced upon other countries as central banking assets. It was to discourage this prospect that the United States pressed its monetary imperialism to its new and present stage during 1972 and 1973. The stage that still continues today. It replaced gold with U.S. Treasury bills as the normal form of central bank reserves, Treasury bills that were loans to the U.S. government to finance its balance of payments deficit, and thereby also its domestic budget deficit. These joint deficits stemmed mainly from ongoing military expenditures and private sector financial outflows to become the basis for the new world money. The resulting Treasury bill standard successfully replaced America's domination of the international monetary system by its official gold holdings with domination of that system by its official government debt to foreign governments. End of chapter 14 Superimperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire by Michael Hudson Chapter 15 The Monetary Offensive of Spring 1973 The monetary agreement to devalue the dollar reached at the Smithsonian Institution in December 1971 prompted U.S. officials to turn what they called benign neglect of the payments deficit into a willfully aggressive policy. The aim was to oblige other governments either to finance the deficit by lending their surpluses to the U.S. government and in the process to finance the domestic budget deficit, or to let the dollar depreciate and thus favor U.S. over European and Asian exporters. American strategists recognized that the excess dollars thrown off by the U.S. payments deficit were being converted into marks and yen to force up the price of one currency after another. This financial instability threatened to render trade agreements unworkable. The only way to defend against U.S. devaluation advantages would have been for foreign governments to compartmentalize their currency and trading systems, arranging barter deals to protect against shifting currency relations, 
and to enact floating tariffs and export subsidies. U.S. strategists doubted that Europe and Asia would take these steps, and they proved right. Foreign economies ended up supporting the dollar rather than risking the monetary anarchy threatened by U.S. actions. U.S. strategy was to continue running deficits for as long as possible. After all, who could tell how long its ability to buy up foreign goods and even companies on credit could continue until other countries actually drew the line and stopped absorbing surplus dollars? The Americans saw that only a world monetary breakdown could bring the free trade to an end. It was clear that the larger role played by foreign trade and investment in the economic life of foreign countries meant that such a crisis would hurt them more than the United States. The threat of triggering a world monetary breakdown accordingly became the U.S. bludgeon with which to threaten the world as the dollar glut intensified during 1972 and 1973. The impotence of foreign governments to meaningfully retaliate, short of breaking totally with the United States and its dollar standard, that is, the Treasury bill standard, was perceived as early as April 1967. Two bank economists, Rudolf Peterson of the Bank of America, subsequently head of the 1970 Peterson Commission on Foreign Aid cited above in Chapters 8 and 9, and John Deaver of the Chase Manhattan Bank, a protege of the Chicago monetarist Milton Friedman, independently suggested that if Europe threatened to cash in its unwanted dollars for U.S. gold, the United States should simply suspend its gold sales, cut the dollar loose from gold, and let it sink against the currencies of governments dumping their dollars. If the Treasury began buying and selling gold only at its discretion, wrote Dr. Deaver, Foreign central banks would be faced with a serious dilemma. With their dollars no longer freely convertible into gold, they would have to decide what to do with the dollars they own and how to deal with the dollars that would be presented to them by their own commercial banks for conversion into local currencies. But this would be a most disagreeable choice. On the one hand, if they permitted the dollar to depreciate, prices of U.S. goods would drop relative to domestically produced goods. Furthermore, it would make U.S. exports more competitive in third markets. This solution would be vigorously opposed by most exporters and businessmen abroad. On the other hand, if foreign central banks continued to support the dollar at its present rate, this would place them more unequivocally than ever on a dollar standard. If it is made unmistakably clear that in the event of a crisis the U.S. would simply terminate the privilege now given to foreign central banks of buying gold freely, then the burden of decision regarding the defense of the dollar would be shifted even more than now from the U.S. to the shoulders of European and other central banks. Footnote 1. The Chase Manhattan Bank Deficits Dollars in Gold. Business in Brief, April 1967, page 3, into footnote 1. American officials expressed some embarrassment at the naked offensiveness of these observations, and Dr. Deaver soon left Chase and disappeared from the economic scene. But his perceptions were on target, for a year later, in April 1968, the first phase of this strategy was applied when the Treasury obtained voluntary agreement from the largest central banks not to cash in their dollars for U.S. gold. In August 1971, President Nixon made the gold embargo an official pillar of his new economic policy. 
the suspension of gold convertibility did indeed force Europe to choose between holding dollars, mainly in the form of treasury bills, or dumping them and thereby permitting the dollar to find its own level, a de facto U.S. devaluation. This made the U.S. payments deficit that is the world's dollar glut not a U.S. problem but one for Germany, Japan, and other payments surplus nations. A year after Nixon took the dollar off gold, the well-known free trade economist Gottfried Habler, a consultant to the U.S. Treasury, urged the government to continue pursuing its objectives without regard to the balance of payments. The first premise of U.S. economic policy, he emphasized, was that U.S. macroeconomic policies, monetary fiscal policies, demand management, should be guided by domestic policy objectives, employment, price stability, growth, and should not be used to influence the balance of payments. In keeping with his free market views, Habler urged the, that the government not try to improve the balance of payments by measures of control such as import restrictions, export subsidies, capital export controls by American policies and the like. It should ignore the trade deficit and pursue a passive balance of payments policy, a policy of benign neglect. Actually, until August 1971, the Nixon administration had been pursuing substantially a passive policy with respect to the balance of payments, although official statements vigorously denied that this was the case. In fact, Habler observed the great sweep of monetary and fiscal policy extending back into the Johnson administration had been independent of the balance of payments. Footnote 2, Gottfried Habler, U.S. Balance of Payments Policy and the International Monetary System, American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research, January 1973, page 177F, originally published in Convertibility, Multilateralism, and World Economic Policy in the 70s, Essays in Honor of Reinhard Kmetz, Vienna, 1972, end of footnote 2. Habler did not reflect that the absence of monetary self-control within the U.S. economy obliged other governments to impose controls over their own currency and capital markets in order to defend themselves against the dollar glut. His conclusion was simple. The U.S. should not try to devalue the dollar, but leave it to other countries to change the par value of their currency, thereby changing the exchange value of the dollar. If the value of one currency after another could be forced up, the dollar would be left in a uniquely abandoned position at the end of the process, remaining low against the revaluing currencies. That would enable the U.S. government to strike the moral pose that it was not devaluing. Other economies were revaluing their currencies, but if the United States itself devalued the dollar, other governments probably would follow so that the net effect would be only to revalue gold upwards. Habler echoed Peterson and Deaver in pointing out that the choices for the world's payments surplus nations to cope with the U.S. payments deficits were A. Inflation B. Appreciation or floating of their currencies and C. Accumulation of dollar reserves Any of these responses would be in the U.S. interest as would be the policies of foreign countries importing more especially from the United States and reducing their trade barriers this array of options would have an intriguing conclusion if countries experiencing dollar inflows let this money work in an inflationary way. In that case, the U.S. payments deficit would inflate their economies until a new monetary equilibrium was reached. It is not impossible that at some future date a foreign dollar holder may engage in excessive inflation, Havler explained. Then he would see his dollar reserves melt away. If this happened on a large scale in many countries, it would bring back the days of the dollar shortage and imported inflation for the U.S. Footnote 3, Ibid, page 182, end of footnote 3. 
World prices would increase as foreign countries bought U.S. exports and capital assets at inflated prices, thereby reducing the value of U.S. official foreign debt in terms of current world output. The United States would simply have inflated itself out of debt. If prices doubled after 10 years, the outstanding real value of U.S. borrowings abroad would be halved. This monetary adjustment process would enable the United States to repay its foreign debts in devalued dollars, that is, dollars that had been borrowed at a time when the dollar bought a maximum amount of foreign exchange to finance the U.S. investment takeover of foreign economies. By the time of repayment, the foreign exchange value of these dollars would have shrunk sharply. U.S. investors thus would pay back their debts with cheap dollars. This was essentially the logic that prompted President Nixon to escalate the policy of benign neglect. In late 1972, he removed the Phase II wage and price controls and announced that by 1974, he intended to remove all controls, limiting U.S. capital outflows. The Federal Reserve System inflated the money supply to spur a boom, contributing to the most rapid inflation America had experienced since the Civil War. The strategy was Machiavellian. Inflation in the United States would be conveyed abroad by the persistent and growing dollar glut, and the resulting rise in world prices would erode the value of the dollar overhang. The $75 billion that the U.S. Treasury owed to the world's central banks at 1968 to 1972 prices and exchange rates would be repaid with the equivalent of perhaps less than $40 billion in purchasing power as measured by the original debt. To the extent that gold was revalued and part of this $75 billion repaid in bullion, the gold tonnage price of this dollar borrowing would be written down to less than one-fifth of its original value as measured by the year-end 1974 price of almost $200 an ounce. Gold prices soared to over $700 an ounce as U.S. monetary self-interest spurred a worldwide rise in commodity and gold prices. It was incidental to this strategy that it exerted a deflationary effect on most third-world exporters of cereal, coffee, oil, and other raw materials priced in dollars and thus worth less in exchange for European and Japanese products. To the OPEC economies, the inflation became a major reason prompting them to quadruple oil prices from late 1973 through early 1974. Foreign countries had been rendered satellites of the U.S. economy in the 1940s and 1950s by virtue of America's world creditor status. They now became satellitized by its debtor position. In fact, the words satellitized and satellization made their entry into the vocabulary of economic journalists as Europe seemed hopelessly fragmented in the face of America's new strategy. As Gordon Tether wrote in his Lombard column of the London Financial Times, the Nixon administration has already provided a working example of the way in which it intends to employ divide-and-conquer techniques to help it discipline the outside world through economic pressure in the same way as it kept it in its place through monetary manipulation for so long. It took the form of a refusal during the recent monetary conference to offer to collaborate in devising arrangements for joint support of the dollar in case of need. The absence of any U.S. firm commitment to support the dollar in a general way means that Washington retains full freedom to allow or even encourage market forces to bring about yet another American devaluation should the rest of the world, for instance, not show a suitable readiness to indulge American wishes and ambitions in 
other directions. Washington's refusal to discuss how dollar support would actually be apportioned between other currencies strikes an even more sinister note. For what it means is that, to the extent that the U.S. plays a part in the work of preventing dollar weakness from revaluing other countries, it is free to decide which currencies it will help to keep down and which it will allow to go up. Needless to say, this puts Washington in an excellent position not only to play one country off against another, but also to bring pressure to bear on those that display less willingness to cooperate in making the economic satellization plan work than the rest. For by inviting American discrimination against them in the exchange field, they will risk having unilateral revaluations that they do not want inflicted on them with all that this entails, and this, of course, is only the start. The U.S. is equipping itself with the power to operate quota restrictions and tariff barriers on a discriminatory country-by-country basis, and that will obviously put it in an even more favorable position to penalize any countries that resist. Footnote 4. Economic Satellites Plan Gets Underway. Financial Times, April 5th, 1972. Into footnote 4. The problem observed, Mr. Tether, was Europe's inability to form a united front against the United States, especially as Germany replaced Britain as America's cutting wedge against European resistance. The outcome of the recent crisis revealed that the Germans are so vulnerable to the American threat to withdraw troops from Europe that they are apt to see things in very much the American way. It is no secret, Mr. Tether wrote in another column, that an overriding purpose of the administration's drive to cheapen the dollar to a sufficient extent to procure a massive excess of U.S. exports over imports is to provide scope for unlimited U.S. capital investment abroad. That might appeal to export-oriented businesses in the United States, he observed, but American consumers would suffer. After all, the perpetual undervaluation of the dollar such a scenario requires will add unnecessarily to their cost of living at home. Footnote 5. Guiding Light in Dollar Diplomacy. Ibid. Into footnote 5. But American industry would be provided with the foreign exchange to buy up the most profitable and technologically critical sectors of European and Asian industry. This, indeed, has been the ultimate aim that has guided American policy since the 1970s, culminating in the purchase of public enterprises being privatized from Chile to Britain and Russia. It was largely that nationalistic economic aim that has motivated U.S. military spending as a wall against potential foreign resistance. American strategies to deal with Europe's swelling dollar holdings were grounded on the recognition that because of the many U.S. overseas transactions that were not functions of price, or as economic jargon expresses it, were priced inelastic, having to be made regardless of price, the U.S. payments deficit, especially the Cold War military spending that was its major element, in all likelihood would continue without being affected much by dollar devaluation. In view of the major role played by price-insensitive raw materials, such as oil, no protracted turnaround in the U.S. trade balance was likely. As the dollar fell in value, the dollar price of many imports from the industrial nations rose, but this did not induce a proportional decline in U.S. demand, nor were exports helped much. More American goods were exported, but the dollar's devaluation reduced the foreign exchange value of their sales proceeds. The Danielian Report calls for rewriting international law to lock in U.S. hegemony. 
In the spring of 1972, the International Economic Policy Association published a report on the United States' balance of payments from crisis to controversy. Its main author, N. R. Danielian, acknowledged that foreigners had become restive at giving real goods and services in exchange for paper, which depreciated in value as American inflation grew. Meanwhile, the money flows from the United States abroad increased foreign inflationary pressures. Footnote 6. International Economic Policy Association, the United States, Balance of Payments, From Crisis to Controversy, Washington, 1972, page 69, end of footnote 6. But from the U.S. point of view, the system's strength lay in the fact that despite this foreign restiveness, there simply was little room to maneuver against the United States. Europeans were caught in an all-or-nothing dilemma. The only way to protect themselves would be to make an outright break with the U.S. economy. It was precisely that threat that had led Britain to knuckle under to U.S. demands in the World War II Lend-Lease negotiations and the 1946 British loan. The 1971 dollar crisis precluded further rounds of world tariff cuts as there was little likelihood of foreign economies lowering their tariffs against U.S. exports. The average 11% devaluation of the dollar in reference to major trading currencies effectively negated the average 10% tariff reductions granted by the United States. Understandably, other industrial countries are determined to insist on reciprocal concessions in another round of trade negotiations to regain lost territory. They are also opposed to connecting monetary negotiations with discussions on trade matters. Footnote 7, Ibid, pages 67 and 87F, into footnote 7. The major prospect for U.S. payments improvements seemed to lie on capital account. Foreign affiliates of U.S. firms might remit more of their earnings to their American head offices, and foreign investors might increase their stake in the United States. Former French Premier Mendes France suggested that Europe use its surplus dollars to buy back U.S. affiliates in Europe, presumably on a compulsory basis, and thus disenclave the American investment presence. There are some precedents, as he points out, since both Britain and France were forced to requisition private assets abroad to pay the United States for their public external liabilities in connection with the two world wars. An official of the United Auto Workers has advanced precisely this suggestion as a solution to the accumulated balance of payments deficit. Footnote 8. Ibid, page 83, into footnote 8. But the United States did not intend to give any such quid pro quo for Europe's dollar holdings. More in mind was the Danielian Report's recommendation that between 10 and $20 billion of foreign official dollar holdings should be converted into long-term, preferably non-marketable, treasury obligations. This would turn these holdings into a nearly sterilized asset. The report found both moral justification and economic logic for other countries to reduce their trade barriers, especially in agriculture. An additional billion dollars worth of food products bought in the United States each year would neutralize the balance of payments cost of U.S. troops in Europe. A more felicitous concept of convertibility could hardly be conceived. Footnote 9, Ibid, pages 85 and 89, end of footnote 9. Europe, thus, was to finance its own military dependency by also becoming dependent on U.S. farmers for feed grains. American policymakers knew that their European counterparts recognized 
that the U.S. payments deficit would continue at a rate of over $6 billion annually, even if the dollar was devalued or foreign currencies were forced up in value and irrespective even of the likelihood of peace in Southeast Asia. Only a drastic curtailment of military operations and closing of installations abroad or a re-imposition of the ban on dependents accompanying soldiers overseas can reduce the gross military outflow on the balance of payments account to manageable proportions. The latter would severely affect recruitment and re-enlistments. The former has major political and military consequences for the national interest. Footnote 10, Ibid, page 16. It also would thwart President Nixon's hopes for an all-volunteer army, at least under circumstances in which a sizable U.S. troop presence would remain in Europe. The report concluded that the government should accept a priori the fact that its annual $6 billion payments deficit would continue. How modest this appears from today's vantage point. Its hundredfold increase is a measure of the success America has achieved in getting foreigners to fund its payments deficit seemingly ad infinitum. Given the fact that the U.S. payments deficit resulted mainly from military spending, not from a surplus of imports over exports, the Danielian proposals were in effect for American labor and capital to displace that of Europe and Japan in order to enable the government to pay for its Cold War programs and other international policies that it decided unilaterally. Foreign earnings remitted to U.S. buyers of overseas firms and foreign markets promised to U.S. exporters, regardless of price, especially for farm exports, would pay for U.S. government policies. The Danielian Report's most novel proposal was to absorb the dollar overhang by establishing a U.S. public development corporation, which would be established by law to borrow liquid dollar holdings on a long-term basis from foreign central banks, individuals, and institutions, and the IMF at attractive interest rates, possibly with a maintenance of value guarantee. The guarantee could be accomplished by denominating the corporation's notes in terms of SDRs or in foreign currencies with the option of SDR conversion. The proceeds would be loaned to U.S. municipalities, states, and other agencies for urban development, housing, schools, transportation, sewage treatment plants, and other needed improvements. Interest rates would approximate those on tax-exempt bonds. Footnote 11 Ibid, page 108, into footnote 11, the proposed financial intermediary would reduce America's need to fund such spending with tax money or domestic borrowing. It would permit taxes to be lowered, providing American exporters with a competitive advantage as foreign governments would tax their domestic residents to finance the dollar acquisitions that were lent to the U.S. Public Development Corporation. The proposal would establish a virtual perpetual motion vehicle for U.S. federal spending. The government would run a domestic budgetary and balance of payments deficit to finance its military and related spending. These dollars would accrue to foreign central banks, which would relend them to finance America's development rather than that of their own economies. The Danielian report's suggestion that the U.S. Treasury offer a maintenance of value clause was to be made conditional on foreign countries agreeing to carry their share of common defense costs and to supply a greater share of foreign aid in terms of absolute amounts. Foreign governments would finance U.S. political, diplomatic, and military aid via the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, and other institutions controlled by the U.S. government instead of through specifically European and Asian instruments serving their own national interests. Another condition was that Europe abandon its common agricultural policy. Footnote 12, Ibid, 
page 109 into footnote 12. This report evidently formed the basis for official U.S. demands. In January 1973, the economic report of the president urged that the United States not participate in any international financial reform without obtaining substantial foreign trade and investment concessions, especially in agriculture. This stance was called the single package approach. Contrary to the most favored nation rule that underlies all international trade agreements, it aimed at unilaterally increasing U.S. tariffs against payments surplus economies such as Germany and Japan. Injured economies were bound to retaliate under GATT rules, as had occurred in the 1962 glass and chicken tariff war between the United States and Europe. Despite the likelihood of such trade sanctions, the government was backed by Congress and national labor unions in a plan to raise tariffs and impose special non-tariff barriers such as voluntary quotas. As Treasury Secretary Schultz put matters at the 1972 annual meetings of the IMF and World Bank, such basic rules as no competitive devaluation and most favored nation treatment have served the U.S. well, but they and others need to be reaffirmed, supplemented, and made applicable to today's conditions. In other words, they no longer suited U.S. economic philosophy. A second U.S. objective spelled out in the 1973 economic report was to freeze the relative levels of world central bank reserves, payments surplus nations, whose reserves rose beyond a specific proportion of the world total, would be obliged to revalue their currencies, presumably on the ground that this would hurt their balance of payments and restore balance to the international economy. Conversely, when countries found their reserves falling below a specified limit, they could devalue even if their deficit were caused by military spending rather than by private sector trade. Only their reserve levels would serve as objective indicators for adjustment, not discriminating between one set of transactions and another. Footnote 13, Economic Report of the President, 1973, Washington, D.C., 1973, page 124F. This plan had been put forth initially by Secretary Schultz at the September 1972 IMF World Bank meetings. End of footnote 13. The onus of adjustment thus was to be placed on the payment surplus nations if the value of Germany's mark or Japan's yen was pushed up by speculative capital inflows, U.S. troops spending, or a U.S. investment takeover of their economies, they would be obliged to penalize their exporters by revaluing their currencies and realigning their economies to adjust to policies determined unilaterally in Washington. Regarding the dollar overhang that had built up, the economic report suggested converting it from a U.S. liability into SDRs, i.e., into the liabilities of the IMF member nations generally rather than of the United States, specifically. One problem standing in the way, of course, was the fact that countries were obliged at some point to repay their IMF borrowings. The economic advisors therefore advocated that the $75 billion in U.S. official treasury debt to foreign central banks should be funded into world reserve assets without any corresponding liability. In line with the trial balloon sent up by the Danielian report, they recommended that foreign central banks set up an investment fund to purchase U.S. common stocks and other securities. The scheme was aimed especially at the oil-producing countries with relatively large external assets. Footnote 14, IBID. Page 170, end of footnote 14. Instead of using their export proceeds to modernize their own economies, payments surplus countries were asked to finance U.S. spending and investment. No such far-reaching proposal was made for third-world countries in deficit. Turning payments surplus nations into economic satellites. 
meeting with President Nixon in Honolulu in September 1972, Japan's Prime Minister Tanaka agreed to increase his nation's imports from the United States by over $1 billion. This sum included a $450 million increase in purchases of U.S. farm products, $320 million of civilian aircraft in an all-cash deal, and $320 million in uranium enrichment services. Japan also agreed to buy a $1 billion gaseous diffusion enrichment facility for peaceful atomic use. Despite these steps, its dollar holdings rose $1.4 billion in October, bringing its international reserves to $23.2 billion. Footnote 15, texts of Nixon, Tanaka, communique, and announcement on trade in Honolulu, the New York Times, September 2, 1972, Japan's currency hoard rose last month to a high as it took in masses of dollars. Wall Street Journal, November 1st, 1972, into footnote 15. On capital account, the continuation of easy money conditions in the United States spurred some $8.5 billion in private investment outflows during 1972. That substantially exceeded the $6.9 billion trade deficit, raising America's foreign debt by a then-massive $10.3 billion. That rise may seem small by today's standards, but it was more than three times the 1971 trade deficit. It would have cut the U.S. gold stock in half had gold convertibility been maintained. Military spending was held at $4.7 billion in 1972, despite the United States spending less in Southeast Asia because it was building up its military bases and forces elsewhere in the world. U.S. officials did nothing to stem the deficit. The Federal Reserve System continued to promote domestic expansion by inflating the money supply and holding down interest rates. Chairman Arthur Burns objected to Citibank increasing its prime lending rate and convinced it to roll it back to 6%. These low rates spurred capital to flow abroad where higher interest rates could be obtained. In the first quarter of 1973 alone, the U.S. payments deficit rose to $10.3 billion, an amount equal to the entire 1972 deficit. U.S. officials continued to act as if the U.S. deficit were a foreign problem and made the usual suggestion that Europe dispose of its dollar surplus by buying more U.S. agricultural exports, letting American farmers displace European ones. To this demand, President Pompidou of France replied, There is not a chance that Europe can redress the American balance of payments through purchases. There is no chance at all. The deficit, he concluded, was, above all, an American problem. Footnote 16, President Pompidou's 8th press conference, January 9th, 1973, Ambassador of France, Press, Services, and Information. End of footnote 16. Matters reached new crisis proportions in February and March 1973. By this time, U.S. monetary strategy had taken on the contours that would remain through the 1980s. To begin with, U.S. officials complained that the Smithsonian Agreement had not permitted the dollar to be sufficiently devalued. On February 7th, Congressman Wilbur Mills announced that the exchange relationship between the dollar and other major currencies will have to be realigned some more above and beyond the 11% December 1971 devaluation. Private dollar holders and speculators took their cue and sold dollars for marks and yen. During the week ending February 9th, Germany's central bank found itself obliged to purchase some $6 billion of dollar inflows to save the mark from being forced up, including $2 billion on Friday alone in the wake of Mr. Mills's statements. Footnote 17, Mills sees need for dollar realignment, declares exchange relationship with other monies should be revised beyond 1971 action. The New York Times, February 8, 1973. Devaluation fear spurs a renewal of dollar sales. The New York Times, 
February 9, 1973, into footnote 17, Tokyo closed its foreign exchange market on Saturday, February 10th, in response to rumors of a 25% devaluation of the dollar against the yen or a special U.S. surcharge against Japanese exports, or both. Over the weekend, the common market countries discussed how they might cope with their dollar inflows. Germany offered to take the lead in financing a joint float by the nine EEC countries, but was opposed by Italy, whose balance of payments was not as healthy as that of its common market partners. France also opposed a float that would increase the franc's value as much as that of the German mark, but it also opposed a unilateral Deutschmark revaluation on the ground that this would strain the common agricultural policy. France and Italy therefore proposed a two-tier exchange structure. The rate for capital investment transactions would be free to rise to deter dollar investments in the French and other European economies, but the foreign trade exchange rate would be held down so as not to impair French and Italian export opportunities. Germany did not want to revalue the mark, which had risen by more than 25% against the dollar during the preceding three years and over 15% against other European currencies. The rising exchange rate had depressed the German automotive, shipbuilding, and steel industries. Volkswagen, for instance, sold one-third of its autos in the United States. The value of German exports to the United States was shrinking in DMARC terms, although it was still rising slightly, as measured by the depreciating dollar. Under Secretary of the Treasury Paul Volcker avoided formal talks with the common market in Brussels, preferring to meet with central bankers from France and other European countries individually over the weekend, playing off one country against another. In Rome, 15 months earlier, the Wall Street Journal observed, Mr. Volcker and Mr. Connolly had to deal with an institution, and they did not like it very much. The common market ministers caucused as a block and never agreed on anything except as a collective personality. The lesson was learned. If you have to deal with the common market, don't. Go instead to Bonn, Paris, and London. The question being asked this week in several European capitals is whether this divide-and-conquer strategy will be the procedure in future crises, and if so, whether the common market is destined to have any real meaning. Footnote 18. U.S. avoided common market in recent money crisis talks. The New York Times, February 18, 1973. End of footnote 18. Europe refused to abort its agricultural policies, forcing the United States to settle its balance of payments problem on the monetary front alone, but was frustrated. It is true that there has been a revolt against American monetary aggression, wrote the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston in its New England Economic Review, but it has been a bloodless revolt, limited in scope and unsure of its goals. Footnote 19. Norman S. Fielke International Economic Reform, Federal Bank of Boston, New England Economic Review, January, February 1973, page 19. End of footnote 19. The Wall Street Journal enumerated some of the benefits the United States was deriving from the monetary turmoil. In weakness there is strength, one London-based American official says with a smile. The more the mark and the yen are buffeted upward, the more competitive dollar-priced goods become in world markets. Footnote 20. On your mark. New monetary crisis is real but could aid U.S. dollar and trade. Turmoil eases upward push on U.S. interest rates. Wall Street Journal, February 12, 1973. End of footnote 20. 
Even more important, the payments deficit was helping to finance the government's domestic budget deficit. As foreign central banks acquire dollars through their market intervention, they ask the New York Federal Reserve Bank to purchase U.S. government securities for their accounts, thus gaining some yield on their reserve assets. Such purchases amounting to $1.66 billion in the week ending last Wednesday, February 7th, help finance the U.S. budget deficit and reduce borrowing costs in the U.S. market. During the year ending March 31, 1973, Japan invested $3.4 billion in U.S. Treasury securities, while Europe invested $13.6 billion and other areas, some half a billion more. That freed American residents from having to lend this amount to the Treasury, leaving it available for domestic capital expenditures and foreign investment. The United States indicated that it preferred direct import controls to further devaluation and threatened to reimpose the illegal 15% import surcharge of August 1971, supplemented by special tariffs and quotas against imports from Germany, Japan, and other payments surplus nations. Is this the economic equivalent of the Christmas bombing in Vietnam? Asked one French businessman. Footnote 21. Surcharge issue vexes Europeans, talking U.S. of reimposition on imports frowned upon. The New York Times, February 10, 1973, end of footnote 21. Monday, February 12th, was Lincoln's birthday and money markets were closed in the United States. They also remained closed in Europe and Japan because of the currency crisis. The next day, foreign governments refused to revalue their currencies, obliging the United States to lose face. By unilaterally devaluing the dollar by nearly 10%, its second devaluation in 14 months. What seemed at first to be a victory for the Europeans in making the United States act instead of themselves appeared to be what U.S. officials had wanted all along. In addition to making foreign products more expensive than U.S. goods, the new devaluation resulted in a 10% foreign exchange loss for central banks holding dollar reserves. The only concession, or mini-concession as it was termed, that U.S. negotiators gave Europe was to revalue gold by 10% to $44.20 per ounce. This enabled foreign central banks to offset their dollar exchange losses with nominal paper gains in the dollar value of their gold stocks. But of course, at no increase in their own domestic currency values. President Nixon warned that more U.S. turmoil was to come. Devaluation was at best only a temporary solution. Only by getting trade legislation and changing or reducing the huge deficits can the pressure on the dollar be taken off. He made it clear that his ideas on trade reform hardly foreshadowed another round of lowering trade barriers. We must go up with barriers as well as down. Making use of the Uncle Sucker myth, he reflected that the United States had entered into too many negotiations abroad in which all we have done is negotiate down, whereas others have negotiated up. He gave no examples. The protectionist pressures that had found expression in Wilbur Mills's trade bill now were being exerted at the presidential level. The Wall Street Journal reported that the president is likely to ask for authority to impose an import surcharge on a country-by-country -country basis selectively applied against certain nations where large payment surpluses are accumulating. Footnote 22, after the fall, Wall Street Journal, February 14, 1973, into footnote 22. But as the 1973 economic report noted, GATT rules forbade surcharges for balance of payments purposes. Footnote 23, Economic Report of the President, 1973, page 128. End of footnote 23. 
a return to international tariff warfare was threatened as other nations were legally bound to retaliate under GATT rules under the most favored nation clause that had governed trade liberalization since World War II. Nonetheless, Rep. Mills took this opportunity to announce that he favored new import surcharges of between 10 and 15 percent. President Nixon threatened to levy special import quotas on French steel for starters and urged foreign governments to impose voluntary export quotas on all items whose sales to the United States were rising significantly. With all semblance of free trade rhetoric abandoned, the American actions prompted a reaction in Japan on which Europe had brought unexpected pressure to acquiesce in the American terms. Footnote 24. Yen climbs 14% in hectic trading. Tanaka criticized. The New York Times. End of footnote 24. Opposition parties renewed their demands for Prime Minister Tanaka's resignation as the yen jumped 14% against the dollar in hectic trading. Mr. Tanaka denied responsibility for the monetary developments, placing the blame directly on the United States and pleading ignorance of the pre-devaluation conversations between his finance minister and the chief American negotiator. European officials hastened to complete plans for full monetary union, which alone could enable them to become independent from U.S. balance of payments aggression, the free market price of gold, which had closed at $72.30 per troy ounce on Friday, February 9th, jumped to $80 an ounce when markets finally were reopened on Wednesday, February 14th, and to $92 an ounce on Thursday. The U.S. stock market, meanwhile, fell by five points on Tuesday, 17 points on Wednesday, and six more points on Thursday as capital funds moved out of the U.S. economy to seek more stable refuge abroad. None of this induced the United States to do anything to stem the crisis. Treasury Secretary George Shultz made an effort to push down the dollar's value even further by announcing that the administration sought yet another devaluation without specifying how much he wanted. Announcement of a devaluation target, the New York Times explained, could undermine Washington's position since, should the target be achieved, Washington might decide that it would like a little bit more. Mr. Schultz underscored the administration's aggressive trade stance by insisting on selective authority to impose selective tariffs or quotas or combinations of the two to safeguard American industry. Footnote 25. Schultz says U.S. seeks new drop in dollar value. The New York Times, February 16th. 1973, end of footnote 25. Congress gave President Nixon unprecedented authority to wage a tariff war against the rest of the world. Europe was forced to choose between permitting the dollar to devalue further or acquiescing voluntarily in the U.S. tariff and quota offensive. American officials were quite open in acknowledging how the crisis situation favored their maneuverability. In an atmosphere of presumed crisis, Mr. Schultz explained, one often finds that one can get something done if you know what it is you want to get done. The administration has found a crisis, it took an initiative, and it obtained results. His assistant, Paul Volcker, echoed these comments, observing that the monetary crisis and dollar devaluation had helped to reinforce the thrust of a constructive reform of the international monetary system. This view was echoed throughout the Wall Street community. Sam Nakagama Chief economist for Kidder, Peabody, and Company reflected that the so-called crises of the past two months appear to have been almost deliberately induced by the Nixon administration in order to achieve its monetary goals. Treasury Secretary Schultz appears to have almost everything he wanted in the way of creating a more flexible monetary system. 
Footnote 26, Assessing the Crisis U.S. Plan for Revision of Monetary System Worked Well in Crunch. Wall Street Journal, February 20th, 1973. Dollar up sharply here. Pact reaction favorable. The New York Times, March 17th, 1973. End of footnote 26. The European response was angry, but was not backed up by any meaningful action. Jacques Servin Schreiber, author of The American Challenge, attacked the brutal act of devaluation which would affect every family in Europe. The French socialist opposition leader, Francois Mitterrand, warned that the devaluation marks the opening of commercial war. Footnote 27. Devaluation stirs anxiety and dismay in Europe. The New York Times, February 16, 1973. End of footnote 27. Pierre-Paul Schweitzer, outgoing head of the IMF, sought to ward off further U.S. devaluation by emphasizing that the dollar already had become an undervalued currency, but Europe's fears of continued U.S. dollar inflows for yet more investment takeovers were increased by President Nixon's announcement that he intended to remove all U.S. foreign investment restraints in 1974. The controls, indeed, were removed in January of that year. Academic U.S. economists were as glib as administration officials in their proposed solutions to the dollar problem. Richard Cooper of Yale, along with Charles Kendallberger of MIT and Lawrence Krauss of the Brookings Institution, suggested that the IMF lend SDRs to the United States without limit or, failing that, lend $6 billion, which would be repaid over a 40-year period by which time inflation would have wiped out most of its capital value. Footnote 28 crisis on money is seen as just one of a series the new york times february 19th 1973 end of footnote 28 the proposal would require the imf to eliminate its existing holding limits of sdrs for individual countries which would find themselves stuck with sdrs as they earlier had been stuck with dollars the new york times observed that from the end of 1969 to the fall of 1972 the united states covered the $45.5 billion increase in its dollar liabilities to other countries simply by requiring that the other nations add that amount of dollars to their monetary reserves, i.e., invest this amount in U.S. Treasury bills. American officials think this dollar standard works tolerably well and are in no hurry to change it. Some Europeans complain that the ability of the United States to create international monetary reserves by printing dollars gives it a free ride on foreign policy, and in effect has forced others to finance such American adventures as the Vietnam War. The Europeans see this ability of the United States to get credit without international constraints as an exorbitant privilege. In the words of the late General de Gaulle, some still regard an international credit system controlled by a single country as a great obstacle in the way of perpetual peace, as Immanuel Kant wrote, in 1795, Professor Robert Triffin of Yale notes that Kant also said the other states are justified in allying themselves against such a state and its pretensions. Footnote 29. Is World Central Bank needed? International crises spark proposals for SDR uses. The New York Times, February 21, 1973. 
These remarks were all made at Claremont College in California during an international monetary conference held there the preceding week. End of footnote 29. Raw materials exporters were hurt as well as industrial Europe and Japan. The big Australian mining companies, whose contracts for ore have been written in American dollars largely with Japan, estimate that the 10% cut in the value of the United States currency this week will cost the industry up to $250 million a year in lost profits unless Australia also reduces the price of her money. Footnote 30. Australians cite currency losses. The New York Times, February 19, 1973. End footnote 30. Dollar devaluation, which already had forced a number of Australian coal mines to shut down, threatened cotton growers in New South Wales with losses of more than $6.5 million, and wheat growers with losses of more than $20 million per annum. Oil exporting countries suffered much more. European economists stepped up their planning for the Common Markets Economic and Monetary Union, EMU, scheduled to begin in 1974. Their immediate desire was to replace the dollar with a more stable standard of value, one that did not oblige them to finance the U.S. government's domestic budgetary deficit via the U.S. balance of payments deficits. Professor John Williamson of England and Signor Magnifico of Italy developed a plan that anticipated the euro that would be introduced 28 years later, in 2002. The plan envisaged a European Reserve Bank issuing Europas to national central banks in return for their reserves and quotas of national currencies. It would act as central bank to commercial banks issuing bonds denominated in Europas. National central banks would manage their individual parities against the Europa, while the European Reserve Bank would manage the rate between the Europa and the dollar. Footnote 31. Is the snake about to hatch a Europa? The Economist, February 24th, 1973, end of footnote 31. These Europas would supplant euro dollars in European capital markets, restoring control of the money supply to Europe. Euro dollars would have nowhere to go except back to the United States, inflating the latter's economy instead of Europe's. For a change, good money might chase out bad. Europe's choice lay between being divided and conquered or proceeding full steam ahead toward economic and monetary integration. Most Europeans wanted the latter option, but the dollar outflow from America rose to such a pace that Germany and other payment surplus economies were unable to defend themselves. On March 5th, the world's foreign exchange markets closed once again and remained closed for two weeks, an event unprecedented in modern history. During this crisis, U.S. negotiators refused to yield to Europe on any point. Treasury Secretary Schultz even rejected suggestions that the United States raise its interest rates to attract more dollars home on the ground that domestic credit measures will be taken in the context of domestic economic development, not foreign concerns. Footnote 32. U.S. pledges help to Europe in settling the monetary crisis. The New York Times, March 10, 1973. End of footnote 32. This inward-centeredness was reminiscent of the abortive London Conference of 1933. As the price of gold pressed toward $100 per ounce, Jacques Roof of France urged that the official price of gold at least be doubled to about $80 an ounce. That would increase the value of U.S. monetary gold from $10 billion to $20 billion. 
Perhaps, he suggested, Europe could loan the gold revaluation profits back to the United States at low interest, but U.S. officials urged just the opposite policy, a reduction in the official price of gold leading to its demonetization. The aim was to prevent Europe and Asia from using their gold reserves vis-a-vis the United States in the way that America itself had used its gold reserves against Europe in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s. U.S. economic strategists discussed the prospect of the Treasury suddenly dumping its gold holdings on world markets, perhaps joined by Britain and a few other central banks in client countries. If America was to lose its gold, so must its allies, so the reasoning went. That would remove the last hope for an objective constraint on the ability of nations to run payments deficits at the expense of others. Footnote 33. Dollar advances as gold weakens. The New York Times, March 14, 1973. End of footnote 33. During February and early March 1973, the German Central Bank felt obliged to purchase over $8 billion to support the latter's value against the Deutsche Mark. Finally, on March 14th, Germany revalued the mark yet again. Two days later, the finance ministers of 13 countries plus the United States met in Paris and announced that all nine EEC members except Italy, England, and Ireland would be joined by Sweden and Norway in maintaining their currencies within a 2 and one-fourth percent margin. The three floating currency countries agreed to associate themselves with the new European fixed-rate system as soon as practicable. The United States agreed not to remove its controls on capital outflows in 1974 unless its balance of payments had improved, and also promised to remove inhibitions on the inflow of capital into the United States but it soon broke its word and did just the opposite, removing its controls on capital outflows while making OPEC countries and other dollar holders promise not to buy any significant U.S. corporation. Footnote 34. U.S. and 13 other nations adopt measures to ease problem of excess dollars. The New York Times, March 17, 1973. End of footnote 34. A number of European moves helped the dollar strengthen when world foreign exchange markets finally reopened on Monday, March 19th. France announced that no interest payments would be permitted on foreign money deposited in French banks and imposed 100% reserve requirements on these foreign deposits. To add bite, the new regulations were made retroactive to January 4th. Holland, Belgium, and Luxembourg announced similar measures, and Germany already had imposed such restrictions. Belgium and Luxembourg imposed negative interest charges of 0.25% per week to be paid by non-residents on all growth in their bank accounts over a fixed base level. These actions left little motive for euro-dollar holdings on the part either of foreign investors who could earn no interest or domestic banks which found their foreign deposits sterilized. Even Spain moved to prevent its currency from becoming a speculative investment medium, forbidding foreigners and non-residents from using their convertible peseta accounts for free currency transactions. They could convert their accounts back into their original currencies and remove them from Spain, but pesetas henceforth could be spent only within Spain. Payment of interest was forbidden on all foreign accounts, and 100% reserve requirements were imposed. American newspapers blamed the dollar's difficulties on multinational firms and Arab oil sheikhs. 
On February 12th, the Tariff Commission reported that U.S. multinational firms held some $268 billion in liquid assets. Much of this sum represented inventories, receivables, and short-term credits to affiliates and other companies and hence was not available for currency speculation, but the impression was given that a mere 5% shift in the currency form of these short-term assets could cause a world monetary crisis. It remained true, of course, that the financial resources in the hands of these companies were so large that they could cause international instability simply by prepaying bills to nations whose currencies were revaluation candidates or paying bills late to countries whose currencies seemed ripe for devaluation. International firms could shift deposits from one currency to another, but most did not want their corporate treasurers to act as speculators. A number of companies and banks had been badly burned doing this, and most large firms feared that controls might be imposed if they acted like bad monetary citizens. Everyone seemed to have their own favorite villain. Persons with axes to grind against the Arab countries seized on rumors that the Sheikh of Kuwait had turned most of his $2.5 billion dollar holdings into gold and hard currencies. Footnote 35. The Great Dollar Whodunit, Financial Times, March 21, 1973. Into footnote 35. Franz Pick blamed Russia, accusing its banks of profiting from a massive speculation against the dollar. Movement out of dollars by corporations, Arab sheikhs, and perhaps communist countries was depicted as the primary cause of U.S. balance of payments troubles, as if the U.S. government were just an innocent bystander. U.S. officials continued to make inflammatory statements about the need for further devaluations, monetary ease, and the removal of capital controls. Paul Volcker, addressing an American Bankers Association conference in Paris, stated that the United States was skeptical of putting a very high degree of discretionary authority in the IMF, as this would impair the fundamental principle of national sovereignty for the United States to act as it pleased without foreign constraints. Footnote 36, monetary officials divided on intervention to prop dollar in present floating system. Wall Street Journal, June 11, 1973, into footnote 36. Europeans replied that their virtual crucifixion on the cross of dollars threatened their own economic sovereignty. French officials were rebuffed when they once again urged the United States to support the dollar. During the last two weeks of March, the German Bundesbank absorbed $1.5 billion in U.S. currency transfers, largely from Belgium, Holland, and France. By June 29th, dollar inflows into Germany forced yet another revaluation of the mark, this time by 5.5%. It was the fifth revaluation since 1969, bringing the D-mark's value to 41 cents compared to 25 cents four years earlier, a rise of over 60%. No international gold sales were occurring at the official price of $44.22 per ounce. Demonetization of gold had removed it as a constraint on the ability of the United States to run balance of payments deficits. At the end of March, the free price of gold had soared above $100 an ounce, and by June was pressing $125 per ounce. Italy was rumored to have sold 300 tons of gold on the free market to obtain dollars to settle its payments deficit with other common market central banks, but most countries running payments deficits sought to hold onto their gold using their unwanted dollars to pay West Germany and other payments surplus nations. Footnote 37. Bond increases official value of mark. 
The New York Times, June 30th, 1973, end of footnote 37. Soviet Russia was said to be holding on to its gold until the price reached $200 per ounce. Over the July 6th weekend, U.S. diplomats apparently agreed to share equally with Europe in any exchange risks that might arise from U.S. swap borrowing of European currencies. The lack of such an agreement had been one of the principal obstacles to agreement on central bank intervention. Footnote 38. Two-day dollar rally adds 5% to value of battered currency. The New York Times, July 11th, 1973. End of footnote 38. The deal was that if the United States borrowed marks or gilder to support the dollar and the dollar was devalued before these borrowings were repaid, the United States would only suffer for half of the loss that the dollar's devaluation caused as denominated in foreign currency. The other half would be borne by the central banks that had extended foreign currency loans to the United States. In the past, debtor countries, such as England, had been obliged to bear the full devaluation impact of their overseas borrowings, but the rules now were to be changed to accommodate the United States. In exchange for this quasi-concession, the Federal Reserve increased its credit lines with foreign central banks from 12 to $18 billion, that is by about 50%, including $1 billion increases with the central banks of France, West Germany, Japan, and Canada. That gave promise of official intervention to support the dollar's exchange rate, no such support having occurred from March through June. But a greater ability of the U.S. Federal Reserve to intervene in support of the dollar did not mean that it would in fact do so. Writing in the New York Federal Reserve Bank's Monthly Review, Charles Coombs, head of U.S. official foreign exchange trading, attributed the dollar's weakness not to the payments deficit, throwing increasing sums of dollars onto world markets, but to sporadic bouts of nervous and, at times, heavy trading to levels unjustified and undesirable on any reasonable assessment of the U.S. payments position. He claimed that the problem concerned the price of American goods and services relative to those of foreign countries, not the volume of military spending and capital outflows to buy out foreign industry. Combs was putting forth what economists call the purchasing power parity theory of exchange rates, sometimes popularized as the McDonald's principle that defines a country's natural exchange rate as that at which a McDonald's hamburger will sell for a uniform world price. This would be the case if it were not for international distortions. Of course, the real world is driven by what academic economists belittle as distortions headed by government spending and private investment. The U.S. argument had been refuted already in the mid-19th century by John Stuart Mill and subjected to a more refined critique by Keynes in the 1920s, both of whom pointed to the impact of capital transfers or other non-trade spending on international pricing. The German and French hyperinflations a half-century earlier had shown that exchange rates have more to do the German and French hyperinflations a half-century earlier had shown that exchange rates have more to do with structural factors, capital flows, debt service, and relative interest rates than with relative product prices. This was clearly perceived in Europe, labeling the U.S. devaluation a new form of protectionism. Mitterrand called for France to boycott the world trade liberalization negotiations scheduled for September. 
at the Bank for International Settlements in Basel. French officials threatened to press for establishment of a common market gold block, which would in effect create a much higher official price for gold. Footnote 39. Reserve lists countries raising their credit lines. The New York Times, July 12, 1973. Dollar advances third straight day. The New York Times, July 13, 1973. Confrontation avoided by Basel Accord. Ibid. End of footnote 39. Europe and America prepared themselves for battle at the September IMF meetings. Trade negotiations had become a dead issue. Freer trade was ruled out by the fact that the dollar's devaluation had wiped out most of the tariff concessions America had granted during the 1960s. This was underscored on July 14th when Belgium's Sabina Airlines ordered 10 Boeing 737 jets at about $6 million each instead of the French twin-engine Mercure, whose price had been increased in dollar terms to nearly $8 million each. Footnote 40. Dollar weakness aids export sales of U.S. airplanes. The New York Times, July 16, 1973. End of footnote 40. In 1969, the price for these two planes would have been roughly equivalent, throwing the advantage to the French plane inasmuch as its seating capacity was 140 passengers, compared to 115 for the Boeing jet. The result was a setback for Europe's hopes to build an all-European aircraft industry as the foundation for military and technological autonomy from the United States. Another U.S. blow to free trade was struck when President Nixon obtained authority from Congress to impose import surcharges on a country-by-country -country basis if foreign economies did not acquiesce in U.S. trade plans and agree to impose voluntary export quotas on their producers. U.S. trade negotiators also asked for compensation for U.S. exports lost as a result of the common market's enlargement to include England, Ireland, and Denmark. They estimated that the Common Agricultural Policy, CAP, would reduce U.S. grain exports to these three countries by some 10 million tons annually, and feared that within five years the common market might become a net grain exporter and hence a rival. The United States refused even to enter into global trade negotiations unless there was an advanced commitment by other countries to meaningful and realistic negotiations in the agricultural sectors, specifically a breakup of the CAP. This demand was still being made in the 1990s. What the United States wanted from Europe and Japan was made evidence by its proposed agreement with South Korea to make it obligatory for South Korean exporters to the American market to import a certain amount of raw materials from the United States. Footnote 41, U.S. official backs claim to trade aid in Europe. The New York Times, February 22, 1973. See also, Nixon asks power to cut, raise, or cancel tariffs and to set import curbs. The New York Times, April 12, 1973. Nixon asks new power on trade. Faster industry aid on import damage is also sought. The New York Times, March 23, 1973. Sold ways turn to U.S. for imports. The New York Times, April 23, 1973. End of footnote 41. 
On another front, the United States struck a blow at the common market's proposed associate membership status for its former African colonies by making it clear that it would not grant new U.S. tariff preferences for any third world country that granted reverse preferences to other industrial nations. What had appeared in 1945 as a liberating dissolution of European colonialism was turning out to be taking the form of a U.S. attempt to lock the world's economies into a new dependency on the United States, above all for American agriculture, aircraft, and military-related technology. The American plan was for foreign countries to become dependent on the United States for food grants, arms, and technology, and to sell their commanding heights to U.S. investors regardless of the fact that the U.S. economy was not generating the foreign exchange to pay for such control. On May 9, 1973, Treasury Secretary Schultz told the House Ways and Means Committee that the forthcoming trade negotiations with other leading nations probably should not be reciprocal, adding that there may have to be more giving than taking as far as other people are concerned. The negotiations won't be all tit for tat. The Nixon administration threatened Europe that if its conditions were not met, Congress might pass the labor-backed Burke Hart bill threatening to cut U.S. imports by $8 billion. France took the lead among its common market partners in seizing upon this statement to insist that failure to reform the monetary system would rule out further trade liberalization. Footnote 42. Flanagan backs Nixon trade bill. Aid denies president is making unprecedented bid for power. The New York Times, May 9, 1973. Schultz renounces reciprocity in trade negotiations. The New York Times, May 10th, 1973. Common market to stress. Tough stand in U.S. talks. The New York Times, May 29th, 1973. End of footnote 42. What made the U.S. posturing so hypocritical was that America was enacting precisely the type of quota restrictions for which it was criticizing Europe the Nixon administration's omnibus farm bill included a sleeper provision imposing permanent import quotas on dairy products already limited under Section 22 of the Agricultural Adjustment Act. The bill placed permanent limits on dairy imports, restricting them to only 2% of the previous year's domestic U.S. consumption. The president could increase this amount of quota-free imports only if he determines and proclaims that such increase is required by overriding economic or national security interests of the United States. Such a finding would presumably be difficult to make in normal circumstances. Footnote 43, Farm Bill stirs official concern. Dairy import limit is seen as threat to trade talks. The New York Times, June 4, 1973. End of footnote 43. Even more important was the fact that under pressure of a 15% increase in wholesale prices and nearly a 50% increase in food prices, the United States placed embargoes on its exports, abrogating existing sales commitments. So much for the free trade ideology America had sponsored after World War II. As early as March, U.S. officials had asked Japan to impose voluntary import quotas on U.S. timber in order to hold down the demand for U.S. exports. These quotas were to complement the equally coercive export controls on Japan's textile and steel exports to the United States. But if it were blocked from importing U.S. forestry and farm products, how could it be expected to reduce its trade surplus with the United States? 
Matters were aggravated on June 27th when America imposed export embargoes on soybeans, cotton seed, and their products, save for sales actually in the process of being loaded on board ships. This broke the nation's export commitments, hurting Japan in particular. Further export controls were imposed a week later on scrap metal and on 41 more farm commodities, including livestock feed, edible oils, and animal fats, peanuts, lard, and tallow. These unilateral actions made it clear that Europe and Japan no longer could depend on American supplies, but were expected to serve simply as residual markets for American agriculture and industrial surpluses on a commodity-by-commodity -commodity basis, and they were to increase their consumption of U.S. products as U.S. output increased, but only to that extent they would obligingly curtail their consumption when U.S. output diminished so that domestic U.S. consumption and prices could remain stable. American trade strategists urged nations accumulating large trade surpluses to purchase specific types of American exports, particularly those of a military character. The arms trade was one of the few areas in which the United States retained some competitive advantage. It sought to balance its oil imports from Iran by exporting jet fighters and other military equipment, totaling nearly $2 billion, including laser bombs, helicopters, and other items that became part of the Shah's five-year modernization program. Footnote 44. Iran will buy $2 billion in U.S. arms over the next several years. The New York Times, February 22, 1973. See also, Pentagon hoping Iran will buy F-14s. The New York Times, July 19, 1973. End of footnote 44. In June, the Pentagon announced a similar-sized $2 billion arms sale to Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, including some $14 million worth of F-14 fighter planes, so new they had not even been introduced into the U.S. armed forces. Rising U.S. oil imports from the Near East, thus, were financed by a rising stream of arm exports to the region. It seemed that U.S. payments balance was to be achieved largely by arming the rest of the world. The implicit end of this process was military hostility. An ideal scenario to U.S. eyes might have been one in which Iran, Saudi Arabia, and other U.S. arms clients invaded OPEC countries that did not choose to recycle their oil export proceeds to the Defense Department. Instead, the Arabs attacked Israel in October. Militarization became a key element of American foreign aid programs, on June 5th, President Nixon reversed the official ban on aid-financed military exports, citing the fact that the United States was losing foreign arms markets to French and Russian producers. Even Socialist Chile was included in the list of candidates for American arms aid in an attempt to induce it not to buy Russian MiG-21s. Secretary of State William Rogers rationalized the change of policy in his testimony before the House Foreign Affairs Committee. The United States should no longer attempt to determine for the Latin Americans what their reasonable military needs should be. Footnote 45. Nixon authorizes jet fighter sales to five Latin nations. U.S. reverses policy in bid to stem loss of markets. Chile placed on list. The New York Times, June 6, 1973. End of footnote 45. It should sell them whatever their regimes wanted, on credit to be repaid by future generations. U.S. aid strategists had pondered the question of export credit for some time. 
In February 1972, the National Advisory Council on International Monetary and Financial Policies argued that the U.S. payments deficit prevented the government from promoting exports on a no-cash, pay-later basis. The report urged nations to avoid a credit race in export financing by eliminating credit as a factor of export sales competition. Footnote 46. National Advisory Council on International Monetary and Financial Policies Annual Report to the President and to the Congress July 1, 1970 to June 30, 1971, Washington, D.C., February 6, 1972, pages 3 and 57, end of footnote 46. In other words, to prevent other governments from using their balance of payment strength to offer more favorable terms, the Council urged international arrangements to assure that government-supported export credit is developed along rational lines. Other governments should curtail their own export financing, despite the revolution into creditor status that enabled them to emulate traditional U.S. credit policies. Having won the first lap of this credit race during the quarter century since the end of World War II, the United States tried to call the race to a halt as it watched other nations threatening to overtake it. U.S. exports were less competitive in world markets as productivity growth except in agriculture trailed that of other industrial nations, losing the financial as well as commercial strength it had possessed in the early post-war years. America no longer had the means to sell its exports on credit rather than for cash, but other countries now had these means. The American economy was evolving toward what some observers welcomed as a post-industrial society, but which seemed simply to be de-industrializing. Seymour Melman blamed matters on a lapse into Pentagon capitalism with its cost-plus pricing contracts that bloated costs for America's arms manufacturers. Internationally, the U.S. was burdened with $6 billion in annual military outlays throughout the world about to suffer ignominious defeat in Southeast Asia and unable to withdraw from Europe and other regions without reverting to the status of being just another nation in a multipolar world. This it refused to do. America's admittedly immense agricultural powers were constrained by a decaying transport system and the nation was breaking its export contracts to all areas of the world, prompting them more urgently to seek self-sufficiency in essential foodstuffs by promoting farm investment behind an agricultural protectionism similar to that which America had applied so effectively. That response was just what U.S. economic planners had worked so hard to stave off in 1945 and in the intervening years. Prospects seemed dim for an underlying improvement in the U.S. payments balance, devaluation of the dollar by 10% in 1973, when added on to the 11% Smithsonian devaluation of December 1971, was calculated to have increased the foreign exchange cost of overall military outlays by a reported $300 million annually. Footnote 47. Devaluation said to cost Pentagon $80 million. The New York Times, February 15, 1973. End of footnote 47. The private sector trade deficit, meanwhile, was widening as a result of increased payments for energy and other raw materials, while the collapsing stock market was discouraging foreign investment inflows. U.S. Soviet Condominium 
the United States found itself in a position not unlike that of Germany in the 1920s. Unable to compete successfully with its capitalist allies, it turned to the Soviet Union for prospective growth in exports. This about-face helped resolve America's Cold War tensions with the Soviet Union. After all, the U.S. and Soviet economies were largely complementary. Russian needed wheat and was a major producer of gold and oil. Whereas U.S.-Soviet trade had seemed more important to war-torn Russia in 1945, it now appeared to offer equal benefits to the United States. Perception of the new state of affairs led to an ironic turn in the Cold War. The United States agreed to sell surplus grain to the Soviet Union for cash and perhaps gold. Now that Cold War trade policy no longer was desired either by the United States or its allies, U.S. officials sought to draw foreign exchange into the Treasury through the most promising avenue that appeared, trade with the Soviet Union and China. The Iron Curtain began to lift. Already in the election year of 1960, the United States and Soviet Union had seemed near to establishing somewhat normal commercial relations. The United States asked Russia for $800 million to settle its World War II debts, and the Soviet Union offered $300 million. As the National Advisory Council on International Monetary and Financial Policies later described these negotiations, they were broken off when... The United States could not accept the Soviet position that such settlement be accompanied by the simultaneous conclusion of an agreement granting most favored nation treatment to the Soviet Union and the extension of long-term U.S. credits to the Soviet Union. Footnote 48. National Advisory Council on International Monetary and Financial Policies Annual Report to the President and to the Congress July 1st 1970 to June 30th, 1971, page 83. End of footnote 48. But now in another election year, 12 years later, the United States was willing to accept the Soviet conditions. A joint declaration was issued at the conclusion of President Nixon's visit to Moscow in July 1972, asking Congress to grant Soviet Russia most favored nation tariff treatment conditional upon satisfactory settlement of the Lend-Lease debts stemming from World War II. As matters turned out, the United States was soon to sell its grain to Soviet Russia, financing its European troop support costs by feeding Soviet troops across the NATO border. The Soviet Union had been making regular payments on that portion of the debt on which it had been able to reach agreement with the U.S. Treasury on October 1, 1945 when it undertook to pay for pipeline deliveries, which ultimately totaled $222.5 million in 22 annual installments at an interest rate of 2 and 3 eighths percent per annum. The Soviet Union had been making annual payments on this account and as of December 31, 1970, had paid a total of $187 million, but it had made deductions not recognized by the United States including $88 million for damage suffered by Soviet commercial vessels in the port of Haiphong during U.S. raids on North Vietnam. In addition, the United States claimed that the Soviet Union owed some $2.6 billion for civilian goods still in use at the end of World War II. These debts finally were to be negotiated when Soviet diplomats arrived in Washington in summer 1972. The United States began by asking about $1 billion in payment, 
claiming that some $200 million in interest had accrued since the 1960 discussions. The Soviet Union countered with its 1960 offer to pay $300 million. A midpoint level of $500 million was agreed upon, leaving only the terms of payment to be settled. The Soviet Union asked for the same treatment the British had received after World War II, 2% interest, over 30 years. The United States explained that such terms no longer were adequate and suggested 6% interest over the same 30-year period. Final agreement was reached on October 18th with the Soviet Union to pay $722 million over the next 29 years. In exchange, President Nixon authorized the Export-Import Bank to extend most favored nation treatment to the Soviet Union, which would allow it access to the American market at the lowest possible tariffs. Footnote 49 Nixon Trade Plan for Soviet Seeks Debt Repayment The New York Times, July 11, 1972 Implications of U.S.-Soviet Trade Pact The New York Times, November 22, 1972 End of footnote 49 Russia basically got its way. What he yielded an interest in principal payments and offering to pay $722 million to settle its remaining Lend-Lease debts was gained back indirectly on July 8, 1973, when it contracted to buy $750 million worth of U.S. grains over a three-year period of this sum, $500 million was financed by the Export-Import Bank, having secured Soviet Russia and China as grain markets the United States might mitigate its objections to Britain joining the European common market and adhering to the common agricultural policy. Russia might become a market for U.S. farmers in the event that they were shut out of Europe. A number of U.S. firms announced plans to exploit Siberia's vast natural gas and oil fields. About $10 billion worth of Soviet gas and oil would be exported to the United States in exchange for U.S. development of the Siberian fields and construction of a tanker fleet to transport this output. On November 4, 1972, three U.S. firms, Tinoco, Texas Eastern Transmission Corporation, and a Halliburton Company engineering subsidiary, announced that within 60 days they expected to complete a $3.7 billion investment agreement to sell Soviet natural gas in the United States. Footnote 50, Soviet gas deal held up as U.S. studies cost. The New York Times, January 9, 1973. See also U.S. Concerns and Soviet Sign Big Natural Gas Deal. Three Houston companies to supply the East Coast from West Siberia. The New York Times, June 30, 1973. End of footnote 50. They would supply and finance $3 billion of American gas transmission equipment, including 1,500 miles of 48-inch steel pipe plus compressors to liquefy the gas for tanker shipment to the U.S. East Coast. The Soviet Union would sell 2 billion cubic feet of gas per day to the United States for 25 years using some $8 billion of the total $18.9 billion in export revenues to repay the capital investment loans. Most important of all, it would earmark the $10.8 billion over and above these loan repayments to purchase U.S. goods and to service exports. In effect, the United States would pay for its energy imports in blocked dollars, a reversion to similar policies to those which its free market diplomats had criticized Germany for in the 1930s. 
financing of the energy agreement called for the Soviet Union to put up $700 million in cash, with the Exim Bank lending $1.5 billion at 6% interest and guaranteeing another $1.5 billion in 15-year private sector credits at 7% interest. The United States agreed to build 20 oil tankers costing $130 million each for a total $2.6 billion over and above its $3.7 billion investment in developing the Siberian oil fields. The construction related to this project was estimated to generate 242,600 man-years of domestic U.S. employment. Footnote 51. Deal is held near on Siberia's gas. The New York Times, November 4, 1972. End of footnote 51. On January 12, 1973, the General Electric Company signed a technology exchange pact with the Soviet Union. In April, Occidental Oil announced an $8 billion deal to construct a Soviet fertilizer complex in exchange for deliveries of ammonia, urea, and potash. Footnote 52 Soviet and Occidental Oil in Multi-Billion Dollar Deal 20-Year Barter Arrangement Provides for Export of American Technology and Goods for Fertilizer Complex The New York Times, April 13, 1973 End of Footnote 52 Associated with this project was the construction of various hotels and a trade center in Moscow. This was a curious turn to the Cold War, which was supposed to guarantee peace within the West and pose the threat of military hostility only vis-a-vis the communist countries. Peace with the latter was being cemented by the new policy of detente. Indeed, the more America began to lose its hold on its non-communist allies, the closer it and the Soviet Union drew together precisely to threaten Europe and Asia with what Henry Kissinger called a new condominium, that is, joint imperialism of America and Russia against their respective satellites. Largely responsible for this detente was America's balance of payments problem stemming from its overseas Cold War spending and its related grain sale to Russia to gain a long-term export market. Selling its grain stockpile to the Soviet Union created a shortage in world markets that led world grain and soybean prices to triple and even quadruple. The U.S. sought to settle its payments deficit by a combination of militarizing its allies and turning to the Soviet Union as a new major export market. The growing U.S. rapprochement with Russia thus came largely at European and Japanese expense and also that of grain importers in OPEC and other third world areas. There was no guarantee that the United States actually would become the favored industrial supplier of the Soviet Union and China. Just as the USSR had shopped around for credit throughout the world, it used U.S. offers of investment in its raw materials development as a lever to exact better terms from Japan and Europe. In November 1972, it reached tentative agreement with Japan on a $200 million oil and gas project, and negotiations were underway in other areas. Footnote 53, Japan and Soviet agree on joint oil-gas project, the New York Times, November 25, 1972, end of footnote 53. The United States thus found itself in danger of being played against other capitalist countries on disadvantageous terms. It was obvious that the Soviet Union desired medium or long-term credits to finance its imports, and the nations outside the United States were in a better balance of payments position to extend such credits. The final play came with the oil war in October 1973. 
When Egypt and Syria attacked Israel, Arab countries embargoed oil exports to the United States, Holland, and Denmark. The resulting oil shortage enabled OPEC to respond to the rise in world grain prices by quadrupling its oil export prices. The oil embargo and the sharp increase in oil prices changed the pattern of international payments, driving a wedge between America and Europe. OPEC banks became the major accumulators of dollars as their trade balance soared. OPEC countries also increasingly became consumers for U.S. military exports, helping to offset U.S. war spending in Southeast Asia and elsewhere. Most important of all, American diplomats became quite explicit in demanding that export-rich foreign countries recycle their dollar inflows into U.S. capital markets. They might buy private sector stocks and bonds, as well as treasury securities, but not majority ownership of leading U.S. companies. In 1973, State Department officials told their counterparts in Saudi Arabia and other Arab oil-producing countries that they would not oppose the oil price increase as long as these countries agreed to recycle their dollar receipts to U.S. financial markets. Failure to do that would be treated as an act of war. The world economy thus was becoming more confrontational, seeing themselves as third-world countries. OPEC members proposed uniting to support raw materials export prices across the board, noting that U.S. grain prices had quadrupled since 1972. Such a countervailing export price rise seemed an easy way to administer more balanced trade. The sharp increase in oil and grain prices, reflecting the world's shift in trade patterns, coupled with continued U.S. military spending and offsetting arms sales, worked to strain U.S., European, Japanese trilateralism. The emergence of what was called a new international economic order, NIEO, effectively terminated the post-war move toward free trade and investment policies. Led by the United States, the non-communist countries were becoming more statist. The ensuing phase of the post-war world economy and how the United States achieved its objectives in thwarting the incipient NIEO and European integration to tap the wealth of all foreign central banks accumulating dollars is described in the sequel to this book, Global Fracture, 1977. End of chapter 15The Economic Strategy of American Empire by Michael Hudson Chapter 16 Monetary Imperialism in the 21st Century Like most individuals, every nation would love to obtain the proverbial free lunch favoring its own interests, while other countries refrain from promoting their own economies, but few nations actually have been able to put such a double standard into practice. The 1930s showed that when they pressed their own self-interest one-sidedly, the international responses tended to generate into zero-sum competitive tariff wars and beggar-my-neighbor currency devaluations. Yet, the United States is now able to run trade and payments deficits amounting to hundreds of billions of dollars annually with no effective protest from the rest of the world. Central banks no longer cash in their dollar inflows for gold. Oil-exporting countries no longer seek to buy major U.S. companies, nor do European or Asian political leaders ask that America finance its payments deficit by selling off its investments in Europe, Asia, and other payments surplus economies. Conditions today are not such that foreign diplomats are willing to take the creditor-oriented stance 
vis-a-vis the U.S. economy that U.S. officials did from the 1920s through the early years of World War II when they insisted that Britain sell off its international investments as a condition for obtaining credit. The rising U.S. trade and payments deficit has been built into the world economic system. America's shift into debtor status has turned the post-war economy into an exploitative double standard almost without anyone recognizing what has been happening. Since the United States went off gold in 1971, the Treasury Bill standard has enabled it to draw on the resources of the rest of the world without reciprocity, governing financially through its debtor position, not through its creditor status, as dollar debts have replaced gold as the backing for central bank reserves, and hence for the world's credit supply, the entire system would be threatened if questions were reopened into its intrinsic unfairness. U.S. diplomats alone have been able to convince Europe, Asia, and the Third World, and since 1991 even the former Soviet Union, to reorient their economies to facilitate America's shift from payment surplus to payments deficit status. No nation ever before has been able to invert the classical rules of international finance in this way. Economies that have fallen into deficit have lost not only their world power, but usually also their autonomy to manage their own domestic policies and retain ownership of their public wealth and resources. That is still the financial and political principle that nations other than the United States must follow. Using its creditor status as a lever to obtain general international rules that promoted its broad long-term economic objectives between World Wars I and II, the United States demanded payment of debts beyond Europe's ability to pay. It chose to go it alone, but by pursuing essentially autarkic policies, it fractured the world economy as its demand for payments on official credits to foreign governments had helped bring on the Great Depression that engulfed its own economy as much as those of Europe and Asia. The 1940s saw the United States use its creditor position to create a more unified global economy whose free trade rules promoted its interests, just as earlier free trade had benefited Britain. The terms of Lend-Lease in 1940 to 1943 and the 1946 British loan provided the framework for U.S. financial leverage to force Britain to give up its empire, relinquish its sterling area, and unblock the wartime balances that Commonwealth countries had accumulated during the war. British negotiators simply gave in when their interests clashed with those of the United States. Their acquiescence in these loan conditions reflected the historically unique mood that followed World War II, feeling the very idea of national interest to be ultimately militaristic. Many Europeans were willing to subordinate it to what promised to be a cosmopolitan system serving the entire world's welfare. Politicians and diplomats left it to American planners to draw up the blueprints for a world system on the logic of free trade and ostensibly uniform economic treatment of all countries. That is not how international diplomacy usually works, much less classical imperialism. Each side is supposed to advocate its own interest, reaching agreements somewhere in the middle, or else breaking off relations and possibly even becoming belligerent, but the world had grown wary of such conflict. Most countries were exhausted by the nationalist rivalries that had contributed to the two world wars. Apart from the abstract moral appeal of a more open world economy, the United States provided Marshall Plan aid to war-torn Europe 
and foreign aid loans to cover the trade deficits anticipated to result from an international economy that everyone recognized would be dominated by U.S. exporters and investors. Such lending was designed to make the post-war system palatable enough for Europe and other regions to adopt relatively free trade and open their doors to U.S. investors as currencies were made freely convertible. Nations agreed not to use devaluation to bolster their international payments at U.S. expense. The United States insisted as a condition for such aid that it be given veto power in the IMF and World Bank. After all, its diplomats pointed out, America was putting up most of the financing for these institutions. In effect, the U.S. proposal was as follows. We have not demanded reparations from our enemies or new war debts from our allies, save for the cost of Lindley's transfers that still have a residual economic value to them. Let us develop multilateral organizations to move the world economy toward freer trade without currency controls. Some countries will run trade deficits as they begin to modernize, but we will extend foreign aid to bridge them over this transition period to a new international equilibrium. Of course, in order to obtain congressional approval for this funding, certain political realities must be recognized, although the new multilateral organizations must be internationalist in spirit, Americans would find it intolerable if, in practice, they infringed on U.S. sovereignty. We cannot abrogate our Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933, nor can we go along with any scarce currency clause for the IMF that would enable countries running deficits to retaliate against U.S. exporters simply for our being so strong an economy. We think it only fair that in exchange for funding international organizations, we should have veto power over any decision they may make Otherwise, payments deficit countries might vote to make America a tributary to themselves. The words sounded almost altruistic in comparison to how America had comported itself after the First World War. The mood abroad was one of laissez-faire idealism as a general principle, but it was constrained by the special concessions demanded by the United States. The economic implications of the emerging world order were not really grasped. It was not simply that America was the richest nation and largest market, or even that its dollar was the currency in which most trade was denominated. That had been the position of sterling already in the 19th century, when it was a proxy for gold, and when Britain's balance of payments normally was in surplus as a result of its industrial and financial leadership. Most important, Britain had sponsored free trade by ending its agricultural protectionism when it repealed its corn laws in 1846. Opening its food markets was the quid pro quo that led other countries to acquiesce in its becoming the workshop of the world and by consolidating its role as world banker. By contrast, the U.S.-centered form of interdependence that emerged from World War II was unipolar, not asymmetrical. American diplomats obtained as much autonomy as possible for their own domestic and foreign policies. U.S. agriculture markets and key national security sectors remained protected and heavily subsidized by grandfathering into trade agreements the laws and market controls that Roosevelt's New Deal had placed on the books in the 1930s. Also grandfathered in were Britain's sterling debts at an overvalued exchange rate for sterling. This condition, laid down for the 1946 British loan, helped ensure that India, Egypt, and Latin American countries would spend their sterling balances on U.S. exports. Congressional approval for international agreements was a fact of American political life 
the reason given by Congress for refusing to ratify the United States joining the League of Nations after World War I was to protect American autonomy and prevent foreign countries from imposing policies that might impair U.S. economic interests, including the local vested interests, to which Congress always has been mindful. America agreed to join the United Nations, IMF, and World Bank after the Second World War only on the condition that it be given veto power that enabled it to block any policy deemed not to be in American interests. Not clearly perceived at the time was the degree to which this condition would enable U.S. representatives to hold these organizations at ransom until they yielded to American policy demands. Diplomatic initiative in these organizations was wielded by U.S. representatives answerable to Congress and the special interests of its constituencies. In no other country have local politicians had an equivalent ability to reject international agreements reached by their executive branch, nor have other countries calculated their self-interest on so narrow-minded a basis in negotiating treaties. The upshot has been that the policies of nominally multilateral institutions, such as the IMF and World Bank, as well as the Asian Development Bank and other offshoots, reflect an American nationalism writ large. U.S. food imperialism versus a new international economic order. For the past 75 years, since World War II ended, American diplomats have discouraged foreign governments from managing their own economies to achieve self-sufficiency or using foreign aid loans to develop the capacity to compete with U.S. exporters. It is mainly U.S. producers and investors that have been aided, not foreign economies, especially opposed, has been Europe's Common Agricultural Policy, CAP, and Japanese agricultural protectionism to maintain self-sufficiency in food. The United States has opposed foreign agricultural subsidies, price supports, and import quotas, such as America itself has employed since the 1930s. Even foreign quality controls on trade in beef and crops have been denounced and remain a thorn in U.S. trade diplomacy with Europe, Asia, and the Third World. Structural problems along these lines were built into the DNA of the World Bank and made its development lending dysfunctional from the outset. It could lend only dollars and other foreign exchange, not the domestic currency needed for agricultural modernization. And although land reform initially was needed in many former colonial areas of the world, the bank was not allowed to insist that governments modify their policies in this area. That was deemed to be an intrusion into domestic political affairs. By the time the World Bank finally began to insist that governments change their domestic policies in order to qualify for loans, its economic philosophy had become so dysfunctional that instead of promoting policies to make debtor countries more self-reliant, its administrators demanded that loan recipients pursue a policy of economic dependency, above all on the United States, as food supplier. Opposition to land reform and public infrastructure support for plantation export crops turned out to, by a highly political interference in domestic politics, highlighted by widespread assassination of land reformers by U.S.-backed military squads. This was the covert underside of World Bank policy making the third world food dependent on U.S. crop exports. The World Bank has become much more interventionist since 1991, most notoriously in the neoliberal mode epitomized by the Russian reforms that created kleptocratic oligarchies. The terms of bank support on which IMF loans have been made conditional in many cases 
have crippled the planning options to finance the modernization of loan recipient countries in the way that the United States itself has done. World Bank and IMF lending programs have left them with dollar debts without having put into place the means to generate the foreign exchange to pay, except by selling off their public domain. Dependency has been created through subsidy rather than financing to achieve self-sufficiency. The World Bank should have advised Russia and other countries to tax natural resource rents and monopoly rents generated from the public domain instead of letting these rents be taken by insiders and sent abroad as flight capital, taxing economic rents from public enterprises, land and mineral wealth, the radio, spectrum, and other natural monopolies could have saved governments from having to tax labor and capital. Instead, the bank insisted that client governments privatize their public domain under kleptocratic conditions favoring U.S. investors. Russia's stock market became a leading source of financial returns for the West in 1994 to 1996. The effect was to deindustrialize the economy, which went together with imposing oligarchic policies as a condition for aid. The revenues that previously were available to the public sector were paid abroad as dividends, interest, insurance, and reinsurance premiums, and management fees by the new owners of what had been the public domain. The IMF's Chicago School monetarists evidently learned nothing from the failure of their austerity programs in the 1960s and 70s. The alternative is to conclude that their crippling programs are deliberate. Their standard demand is for the governments of debtor countries to tighten the screws by administering high interest rates and levying onerous taxes on labor and domestic capital, not foreign-owned properties. This austerity stifles development of the domestic market, leaving raw materials to be exported rather than worked up at home. It keeps domestic wages low while racking government budgets, forcing client regimes to submit to virtual bankruptcy and sale of their public domain to rentier investors. The U.S. objective has been to turn foreign economies into a set of residual functions, Foreign demand is to grow smoothly in keeping with U.S. export capacity on a sector-by-sector -sector basis, while foreign production expands to serve U.S. import needs, but does not lead to foreign self-sufficiency or displace American products in global markets. Europe, Asia, and the Third World are to absorb America's farm surplus, but must not protect their own agricultural sectors in the way that the United States itself has done since 1933. While U.S. agricultural protectionism has been built into the post-war global system since its inception, foreign protectionism is to be nipped in the bud. Debtor countries have maintained solvency under such conditions by selling off national endowments to foreigners, e.g., as occurred in the second stage of Russian privatization in the late 1990s. Such sell-offs of natural resource rents and monopoly rents prevent that revenue from being used as the basis for domestic taxes. Privatizing infrastructure prevents its services from being subsidized to keep down the economy's overall cost structure. Monopoly rents are taken by private owners and largely remitted abroad, often as capital flight by domestic owners into the dollar or its satellite currencies. Collateralizing and pledging these economic rents for bank credit to the world's creditor nations threatens to make the existing world specialization of production and fiscal malstructuring irreversible. 
that is irreversible without a sharp break occurring, which would involve immediate losses and economic dislocations. However, these losses in the short run pale in comparison with the long-term costs of not breaking with the existing system. Attempts to create a new international economic order collapsed by the end of the 1970s. The question remains one of just how to restructure the world economy and how costly a failure to redesign it will likely be for Europe and Asia. The Monetary Imperialism Implicit in the U.S. Treasury Bill Standard Financial and fiscal restructuring is a precondition for creating a multipolar world economy and for resisting the U.S. Treasury Bill Standard's most exploitative feature, the free lunch that America obtains from the rest of the world without limit. By running a structural balance of payments deficit, this relationship hardly was perceived at the time the dollar was adopted as a key currency in the economic conditions that existed at the end of World War II. Apart from buying gold, central banks were able to build up their international reserves mainly by buying U.S. Treasury securities in direct proportion to the U.S. government running into debt to foreign governments. Central banks held these interest-bearing dollar IOUs as key currency reserves on a par with gold, readily convertible at a price of $35 an ounce. The system unraveled as America's balance of payments moved into deficit and its gold began to return to Europe and specifically to central banks and hence the governments of France, Germany, and other nations. The widening U.S. payments deficit resulted from overseas military spending, not from private trade and investment, starting slowly during the Korean War and gaining momentum with the onset of the Vietnam War. The gold cover shrank at an accelerating pace, threatening the minimum legal backing of 25% of the currency in circulation. This military and political coloration of America's balance of payments deficit was of critical importance. The U.S. government was running up foreign debt for policies with which most of its European creditors and many Asians disagreed. Under the pressure of this military deficit, the government intruded increasingly into the realm of international trade and investment highlighted by the January 1965 controls it imposed on bank lending abroad and the overseas financing of U.S. companies. These controls were not enough. By 1968, the United States began to close the gold window and in 1971, formally cut the link between the dollar and gold. By the spring of 1973, its officials had developed the strategy that the nation would pursue for nearly two decades. Instead of adhering to the creditor-oriented rules of international finance that it had endorsed in 1945, America used its debtor position to extort more foreign concessions and wealth than it had been able to obtain as a creditor nation. It told payment surplus economies not to use their dollar holdings to buy into U.S. industry in the way that American investors bought into theirs in the 1950s and 1960s. It demanded that European and Asian central banks extend almost automatic credits via the U.S. Treasury Bill Standard while pursuing a creditor stance vis-a-vis -vis indebted third world and Comic-Con countries. Europe, Asia, and other payment surplus regions were stuck on the horns of a dilemma. If they refrained from absorbing surplus dollars and recycling them to the U.S. Treasury, the dollar would depreciate. At first glance, this would provide U.S. producers with a competitive edge while penalizing exporters in hard currency economies. Yet, the U.S. payments deficit has widened all the more. America's free ride has not enabled it to restore balance. Or rather, 
the United States has little interest in doing so. Why should it? After all, it has consistently refused to raise its own interest rates to obtain foreign funds to finance its deficit on the ground that this would slow economic activity at home. Even as it demands via the IMF that other countries running payments deficits sacrifice their economies to pay their foreign debtors. Even in the face of hundreds of billions of dollars worth of foreign central bank purchases of U.S. Treasury securities since the gold window was closed in 1971, the dollar declined radically against the Deutschmark, the yen until 1995, and other hard currencies, third world dollar users suffered collateral damage as their oil, copper, and other raw materials remained priced in depreciating dollars. Their inability to develop an alternative to pricing in dollars helped hold down price levels in Europe and Japan. While much of the value of the U.S. official debt to these creditor economies has been eroded by inflation, which accelerated in the quantum leaps that occurred in the 1973 grain and oil shock and the 1979-1980 Carter-Volcker inflation, Unable to obtain more than a marginal competitive edge from its dollar depreciation, the U.S. government sought to lock in its share of world markets by negotiating fixed shares. That threatened to turn world trade into a Procrustean bed of managed markets. U.S. officials not only demanded that foreign economies guarantee fixed market shares to U.S. exporters, but broke world trade rules by imposing import quotas unilaterally. Elsewhere, on the balance of payments front, U.S. officials insisted that foreign military budgets earmark specific sums for American-made components. Germany and Japan were told to pay for U.S. military presence as part of their own national budgets and to lend an equivalent amount of dollars to the U.S. government with only a hazy idea of when or even if the nominal loans are to be repaid. The Essence of Modern Monetary Imperialism The U.S. balance of payments deficit that caused a global crisis in 1971 when its $10 billion magnitude led to a 10% dollar devaluation grew to nearly $150 billion a year in the late 1980s, double that amount by the end of the 20th century and without limit ever since. The U.S. Treasury continues to pursue the same strategy of benign neglect for its deficit that it did in early 1970s thanks to the fact that when foreign central banks add dollars to their international reserves, this not only finances the U.S. payments deficit, but also, in the process, America's own domestic federal budget deficit. The larger the payments deficit grows, the more dollars mount up in the hands of foreign central banks to recycle into U.S. Treasury IOUs. America going off gold in 1971, therefore, has confronted Europe and Asia with a dilemma. Letting the U.S. payments deficit drag the dollar down would give U.S. exporters a price advantage. To protect their own producers, foreign central banks must support the dollar's exchange rate by recycling their surplus dollars back to the United States. This option is limited to U.S. Treasury securities. As American diplomats have made it clear that to buy control of major U.S. companies or even to return to gold, would be viewed as an unfriendly act. The U.S. budget deficit is soaring as the successive U.S. administrations have slashed taxes on the wealthy while increasing military spending. The world has come to operate on a double standard as the U.S. payments deficit provides a free lunch in the form of compulsory foreign loans to finance U.S. diplomacy. 
Foreigners have no say over these policies. Their central bank dollar accumulations are, in effect, a seniorage tax levied by America on the world's central bank, a kind of taxation without representation. Foreign financing of the U.S. government does not give them the voting rights in U.S. policy formation. This is in direct contrast to the U.S. government, IMF, and World Bank using their dollar claims on debtor economies in Latin America, Africa, and Asia to force them to follow neoliberal pro-U.S. Washington consensus policies. If the U.S. deficits no longer inspire crises such as those that occurred in the 1970s, it is because the central banks of Europe, Japan, OPEC, and other dollar accumulators have acquiesced thoroughly in what may appropriately be called monetary imperialism. The vehicles for this super-imperialism are not private international firms or private finance capital, as under the old European colonialism, but central banks. Through international financial maneuverings, the United States has tapped the resources of its dollar block allies. It has not done so in the classic fashion of a creditor extorting debt service, and certainly no longer through its export competitiveness and free competition. Rather, the technique of exploitation involves an adroit use of central banks, the IMF and the World Bank, and its associated regional lending institutions to provide forced loans to the U.S. Treasury. The IMF created a source of funding for the United States by devising SDRs, special drawing rights, as paper gold, but it really was paper dollars. Their purpose was to enable U.S. balance of payments deficits by drawing on SDRs to give countries outside of the United States some kind of freely created IOU that was not technically a dollar obligation of the U.S. government. The United States now rules not through its position as world creditor, but as world debtor, making other countries lenders to itself simply by building up their own central bank reserves in the form of U.S. Treasury securities. This rigged game of dollarizing the world's central bank reserves has enabled America to flood the world with dollars without constraint as it appropriates foreign resources and companies, builds military bases and outposts, and imports foreign goods and services, giving nothing in return except treasury IOUs of questionable and shrinking value. Rather than America's debtor position being an element of weakness, it has become the foundation of the world's monetary and financial system. The rationale for America's ability to retain its role as world banker and key currency status no longer reflects the 1945 post-war faith in its moral leadership and the rhetoric of open markets. Its diplomats have shown a readiness to play the role of wrecker if foreign central banks stop relending their dollar inflows to the U.S. Treasury, despite the anguished European and other foreign protests since 1968. Its diplomats know that they can plunge the world into crisis if the United States is not given the special favoritism that Congress demands, including autonomy from all international economic and political agreements. That is why Europe and Asia fear the U.S. power to bring on a world financial collapse irascibly if it does not get its way in making demands one-sidedly in its self-interest. Foreign trade accounts for 25% of GDP for many European economies, but only about 5% of America's. Its ability to go it alone gives the United States an option not available to other nations. Europe and Asia are more highly dependent on smoothly functioning foreign commerce, and their central banks hold trillions of dollars in U.S. Treasury securities as their monetary backing and savings in the form of what the United States would like to make the new money of the world, as James Stewart characterized gold. In 1767, they are on the hook 
for U.S. willingness to pay. The result is that until other nations are able to replace the dollar slash treasury bill standard with a currency system based on their own mutual obligations and until they are willing to run the risk of a trade and investment war as the price of achieving their own self-sufficiency, the U.S. economy will have little compulsion to live within its means. Its diplomats can make the threat. Nice little economy you've got there. It would be a shame if something happened to it. But if you do not let us issue IOUs simply as paper with no solid assets or willingness to pay to back up these IOUs, your economy will collapse. America's demand is to turn foreign economies into satellites, dovetailing into U.S. export and investment drives. Above all, to accept its position as food exporter to the rest of the world. U.S. officials demand food dependency on U.S. exports on the part of Asia, the former Soviet Union, and third world countries, although not Europe, having lost the fight against Europe's common agricultural policy. Military dependency also is demanded along with monopoly rents from electronics and military-related technology. Japan has been one of the most hapless examples of how the United States rules foreign countries through client elites. When Japanese auto and other industries made rapid inroads into U.S. markets, American diplomats got Japan's leaders to agree to the suicidal Plaza and Love Accords of 1985 and 1987. These accords obliged Japan to hold down its interest rates so that the United States would not have to raise its own rates and thereby threaten re-election of the Republicans in 1988. The money manager David Hale called Japan the 13th Federal Reserve District as a result of these agreements, committing Japan to inflate its land bubble, leaving it effectively bankrupt after the bubble burst in 1990. Meanwhile, third world debtor countries are obliged to submit to austerity programs that U.S. planners refuse to adopt for their own indebted economy. Argentina's IMF riots that toppled the government in December 2001 were a landmark mistake that prompted IMF economists to say that never again would they make such unpayable and destabilizing stabilization loans, only to start doing so again in 2019 to 2020, to support yet another pro-U.S. Argentine regime imposing austerity to pay its dollarized debts. These are owed mainly to wealthy Argentinians operating out of offshore tax havens, to be sure. That cosmopolitan class has been the main beneficiary of IMF subsidy of capital flight, leaving the loan to be paid by domestic labor being squeezed yet more. U.S. diplomats have found that all they need to represent U.S. interests are central bankers trained in the Chicago schools, monetarism for export doctrines of financial subservience to the United States and IMF. American officials loudly and almost incessantly repeat that their economy is the leading practitioner of an objective technocratic wisdom that provides the bulwark for world economic stability. But the academic doctrinal basis of these claims, their neoliberal economic theory, and even their statistical models rest on the same dysfunctional monetarist policies that the IMF and World Bank have used to cripple the third world and other debtor economies for the past few decades. Japan and the former Soviet economies let their policies be dictated by U.S. advisors, much as Britain succumbed in the aftermath of World War II, as if U.S. proposals really put world development above America's own national self-interest. It should now be obvious that such trust in U.S. leadership has been misplaced. Yet how many Japanese are reminded that in 1985 to 1987 their country was asked to lower its rates and create a bubble simply to help promote boom conditions 
in the United States to help the Republican administration be reelected, and in Russia, where is the attempt to renationalize the natural resource patrimony that was privatized by the U.S. installed kleptocracy? The seemingly equitable and symmetrical world economy based on free markets that was promised at the close of World War II under American aegis has led to an epoch of unprecedented government control, but both within and outside the United States, centralized economic planning is now being centered, not in the hands of government, but in those of the financial centers. The aim of this new financialized central planning is not to increase production or living standards as promised by monetarist economic textbooks, but to squeeze out interest and dividends and transfer them abroad. Free market economics of this sort has degenerated into an attack only on government's intent on protecting their societies from this corrosive exploitation. Public taxation is opposed merely to leave a larger economic surplus to be transferred to a rentier class in the United States and its protectorates, either in the form of interest and dividends from debtor countries or central bank loans from creditor nations to the U.S. Treasury. This financialization is being imposed on the domestic U.S. economy as well, of course. The Washington Consensus aims to make it universal, as the classical economic model of the world is turned upside down. It remains for academic economists to incorporate this new reality into their theorizing, and for other nations to incorporate an analysis of the new dynamics into their foreign policy. But the role of U.S. vested interests and diplomacy in the evolution of post-Bretton Woods monetary arrangements suggests that a move to a multipolar world must necessarily risk a global financial meltdown during the interregnum needed to pave the way for monetary reform. So far, the threat of such a meltdown has deterred alternatives from being put forth, as Europe was deterred in 1933 and 1973. Only recently have U.S. sanctions against China, Russia, Iran, and their trading and investment partners acted as a catalyst to bring about and indeed force the creation of such alternatives to protect their economic self-determination. Gold and the lack of alternatives deemed to be fair and symmetrical. Gold and silver historically have served as the most universal objective asset, the prize for which national economies vied as an internationally agreed-upon means of settling their national payments imbalances. But, when gold was effectively demonetized in 1971, nothing of equally symmetrical character was developed to put in its place. Only the United States moved to fill the vacuum with its dollar, that is, with its treasury IOUs. Europe, Asia, and non-aligned nations did not seek to create an alternative. Today, the euro remains little more than a surrogate for dollars, not an international asset providing the services that gold provided for many centuries. Keynes called gold a barbarous relic because in his day, it constrained domestic credit creation and hence imposed deflationary conditions that limited employment growth. On the international front, the gold exchange standard limited the ability of economies to run balance of payments deficits. Most such deficits historically have been military in character, so gold served as a constraint against war. The gold exchange standard would have deterred the war in Vietnam had it been imposed on the United States. Also constrained would have been U.S. buyouts of European industry with Europe's owned funds and the free ride enjoyed by America by its monetary imperialism. Would that have been a bad thing? Gold is inappropriate for domestic monetary backing. 
Freeing domestic credit from gold has been a precondition for promoting rising employment and production. The natural basis for domestic money is its acceptability by the government for payment of taxes or public services, but international relations are different. Gold serves as a constraint on imbalances in international payments, not on domestic production and employment. One, therefore, might say that Europe and Japan abandoned gold prematurely before developing an alternative to the dollar or dollar proxy SDRs issued by the IMF as effectively an arm of the U.S. government. But as of 2021, the euro has not provided the requisite alternative to the dollar or gold. It is not a truly political currency and lacks the critical mass, politically speaking. But even more important, there has been no political will for Europe to create an alternative. Only America has shown the will to create global, international structures and to restructure them at will to fit its financial needs as these have evolved from hypercreditor to hyperdebtor status. But this was not a natural development free of diplomatic arm-twisting, as the dollar ceased being as good as gold. Leading up to 1971, the U.S. Treasury put pressure on central banks to demonetize the metal and finally drove it out of the world monetary system. Removing gold convertibility of the dollar enabled the United States to unilaterally pursue protectionist trade and Cold War military policies simultaneously. A new dollar decline started in late spring 2002, soon after President George W. Bush announced steel tariffs that were illegal under international law. These acts were called the 1971-1972 Glass and Chicken War between America and Europe and the grain embargo that quadrupled wheat prices outside of the United States. As discussed in Chapter 15, the embargo inspired OPEC to enact matching increases in oil prices to maintain terms of trade parity between oil and food. The oil shock was a reverberation of the nationalistic U.S. grain shock. Norway's sovereign wealth fund from its North Sea oil suffered such severe losses from recycling its North Sea oil earnings into the U.S. market that by October 2001, the government felt obliged to inform local municipalities that they would have to contribute extra sums to their pension funds. To make up for the U.S. market plunge, public support was cut back for Norwegian museums, orchestras, and other cultural organizations. Such losses were the equivalent of a negative interest rate. There always are two sides to every issue. U.S. officials claim that their surplus dollars act as a growth locomotive for other countries by expanding their credit-creating powers, as if they needed dollars to do this. American diplomats were easily able to derail foreign attempts to break free of what has become a tidal wave of deficit dollars. Perhaps historians looking back on the modern era from their vantage point in a century or two will find it remarkable that neither Europe or Asia, nor other regions, could devise a truly new international economic order that would keep economic gains for the national economies, producing them instead of relinquishing them to the U.S. economy. No doubt today's era will be seen as one of remarkable asymmetry between the United States and the rest of the world. The United States has received a free ride, while Europe has been unwilling to play the great game of international finance with anywhere near the astuteness of the Americans. On the highest plane, one might place the blame on economic theory, on the failure to develop 
functional categories that would enable politicians, diplomats, and the public at large to better understand the principles guiding American negotiators in 1932-1933 and 1972-1973. Without such an understanding, no post-dollar world can be created. End of chapter 16 Super-Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, by Michael Hudson. Chapter 17, Epilogue 2021, The Ending of Super-Imperialism. A century of European economic rivalry, but relative peace, lasted from the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815 to World War I in 1914. That gave way to a long 20th century, often called the American century. Footnote 1. For background to the term American century, see David Harvey, The New Imperialism, New York, 2003, first popularized by Henry Luce in Life magazine, February 17, 1941. Its domineering economic and military character became explicit in the 1997 Project for a New American Century, End of footnote 1. Characterized by U.S. economic strength domestically and by its military power, capped by its international financial dominance, this dominance started with World War I's intergovernment debt legacy, followed by America's debt diplomacy since World War II, and is ending in today's looming new Cold War, 1921-2021. to in 1921, the United States demanded that its allies pay for the arms and munitions they had bought prior to America's entry into the Great War. The Allies wanted these debts treated as contributions to a common cause and forgiven, but agreed to pay out of the reparations they imposed on Germany. The resulting debt burden plunged America as well as Europe into depression by 1931, leading to World War II, and as that war was ending in 1945, U.S. diplomats again used their nation's near monopoly on gold and its dominant creditor position to dictate the rules of post-war trade and finance along lines that promoted the nation's self-interest and enhanced its economic dominance. What reversed America's creditor leverage was its overseas military spending deemed necessary to enforce this dominance. From the Korean War in 1950 through the Vietnam War, deepening U.S. balance of payments deficits drained the Treasury's gold reserves, forcing the dollar off gold in 1971. Even as the United States became the world's largest official debtor, it persuaded Europe, the Near East, and East Asia not to use their own creditor positions to create an alternative to America's regime of special trade and monetary favoritism. The ensuing half-century, 1971-2021, to has seen foreign leaders subordinate their country's national self-interest to finance an increasingly indebted United States by investing their growth in international reserves in U.S. Treasury IOUs. U.S. officials have no intention of imposing domestic austerity or selling off key economic assets to pay America's foreign debt, to say nothing of cutting back its military spending, as it demanded of European debtor countries in the 1930s. The policy is to finance the ongoing U.S. balance of payments deficits with more Treasury IOUs. As former Treasury Secretary John Connolly quipped to European and other payment surplus nations reluctantly flooded with dollar inflows, it's our dollar, but your problem. 
That has been the guiding principle of U.S. financial diplomacy since 1971. It has worked remarkably well, but of course there is a limit to just how far U.S. diplomats can press foreign governments to accept more dollars. How U.S. Foreign Investment Left Its Economy Deindustrialized To help offset the balance of payments costs of U.S. overseas military spending, American policy has promoted foreign investment by U.S. corporations since the 1960s. The hope was for them to buy up the most profitable sectors of foreign economies and remit a rising flow of foreign earnings to the United States. America's leading companies became multinational. And, as they did, they hired lower-cost foreign labor. This trend accelerated in 1994 when the Clinton administration's North American Free Trade Act, NAFTA, led U.S. manufacturing firms to create maquiladora factories along the Mexican border. Then in 2001, Clinton sponsored China's admission to the World Trade Organization, WTO. That initiated a shift of industrial production, employment, and fixed capital investment to Asia, whose growth rates outstripped those of the United States and the Eurozone. Despite U.S. wages stagnating since the 1970s, carrying charges on its debt-ridden, privatized, and monopolized economy, have priced its labor and industry out of world markets, driving manufacturing offshore. The United States has become trade-dependent for most manufacturers, apart from arms. Factories are being repurposed into gentrified housing, bought largely by post-industrial financial managers. Thanks to the Treasury Bill Standard, the world's central banks are effectively financing America's purchase of the manufacturers it no longer produces. But this poses the question of how long the deindustrializing United States can deter Europe, Latin America, Asia, and Africa from using their economic surpluses for their own prosperity and convince them to refrain from trading with or investing in America's designated adversaries. In 2020 to 2021, Europe simply rejected U.S. pressure to cancel the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia and block trade and investment with China, making its own deals. Today's basic conflict, financialized rentier economies versus industrial economies. China today is following a similar industrial strategy to that which the United States and Germany followed in the late 19th century. The common logic is for public investment in infrastructure to provide basic services at subsidized prices to lower the cost of living and doing business while spending on social welfare to raise the educational health and productivity levels of the population at large. Since the 1980s, the U.S.-dominated IMF and World Bank have followed the opposite philosophy, using financial leverage to force debtor countries to pay foreign banks and bondholders by selling off their public infrastructure to be privatized into rent-extracting monopolies. The effect has been to increase costs for transportation, communications, and other basic utilities, which does not help debtor economies recover. The United States itself has adopted this privatization policy at home, posing the question of whether it or any economy can live by replacing public infrastructure with corporate rent-seeking, increasing the cost of living, by privatizing markets for basic needs and allowing the finance, insurance, and real estate fire sector to inflate housing, healthcare, and education costs by an exponential growth of debt. These increases in the cost of living and doing business have made the U.S. economy uncompetitive in world markets, except for the arms industry, agriculture, albeit declining, and intellectual property rights in information technology, pharmaceutical monopolies, and entertainment. 
The combination of privatization, financialization, and rent-seeking has counterposed America's neoliberal economic philosophy to the now old-fashioned industrial policy favoring mixed economies subsidized by public infrastructure investment. The former track polarizes income and wealth. The latter promotes broadly-based prosperity, but calls for nations to act more independently and resist U.S. demands to privatize and to financialize infrastructure into debt-financed, rent-seeking monopolies. The Attempted TPP and TTIP Corporate Power Grab Regaining the presidency and Congress under Barack Obama, 2009-2016, the Democrats proposed two neoliberal trade agreements, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, with 12 Pacific Basin nations, and a Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, TTIP, with Europe. Both treaties included a radical proposal to limit the power of governments to enact regulations that might impair the profits of foreign investors. From the U.S. vantage point, this would maximize the remission of profits by U.S. and other multinational firms, which were to be freed from any liability for having damaged public health, welfare, or the environment. Investor State Dispute Settlement, ISDS, tribunals were to be created, empowered to order governments to make full 100% restitution to companies that were charged penalties for pollution or whose profits were reduced by any other regulations deemed to be in the public interest. Despite oil spills and other environmental damage, global warming, and monopolistic anti-consumer behavior, governments were to compensate foreign companies for whatever profits they might claim to have lost as a result of public environmental, economic, and social regulations. ISDS judges were to be corporate appointees to make sure that corporate interests would be given priority over those of governments without concern for economy-wide consequences of the corporation's socially and economically destructive behavior. A group formed to counter these proposals, ExposeTheTPP.org, cited the economist Susan George's description of the ISDS Investment Tribunal as a sophisticated, toxic, U.S.-led corporate racket, a concerted assault across the spectrum, from the environment and animal welfare, to labor rights. The group noted, Even when governments win, they often must pay for the tribunal's costs and legal fees which average $8 million per case. Some of the investor state attacks now underway are Chevron trying to evade liability for its Ecuadorian Amazon toxic contamination, Philip Morris attacking Australia's cigarette labeling policy, Eli Lilly attacking Canada's drug patent policy, and European firms attacking Egypt's post-revolution minimum wage increase and South Africa's post-apartheid affirmative action law. Footnote 2. David Swanson, TPP, The Terrible Plutocratic Plan, Counterpunch, July 22, 2013, end of footnote 2. A Financial Times summary reported, Anti-fracking activists say such a mechanism would allow oil companies to sue local authorities for imposing strict environmental guidelines. Canada has raised concerns that cigarette companies could use the provisions to take governments to court over anti-tobacco regulations. Footnote 3. David Pilling and Sean Donnan, Oceans 12, Financial Times, September 23, 2013, End of footnote 3. The proposed ISDS tribunals would handcuff governments from regulating health standards and consumer safety. 
fining polluters and other environmental violators, and imposing new taxes on property or wealth. By blocking national authority to regulate economies, the TTP and TTIP would centralize economic policy in Wall Street and other financial centers, tying the hands of elected governments. This rewriting of national and international law would roll back the West's long progressive democratic control of national resources. As Lori Wallach summarized, Corporations are empowered to drag a sovereign government to a tribunal of three private sector trade attorneys who rotate between being the attorneys for the corporation, suing the governments, and being the judges. No conflict of interest rules. For the United States itself, these three private corporate attorneys can order a government to pay our tax dollars in unlimited amounts to a foreign corporation because they think that our domestic environmental, land use, zoning, health, labor laws violate their new corporate rights in an agreement like TPP. Footnote 4 a corporate Trojan horse. Critics decry secretive TPP trade deal as a threat to democracy. Democracy Now! April 15, 2015, citing cases reviewed on www.isdscorporateattacks.org. End of footnote 4. Other protests from the United States arose over the secrecy with which President Obama wrapped his request for fast-track authority for the largely secret trade and investment deal. By spring 2015, Eve Smith wrote on Naked Capitalism, Alarm was spread by a well-timed joint publication by WikiLeaks and the New York Times of a recent version of the so-called investment chapter. Footnote 5, Eve Smith, Thoughts about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Naked Capitalism, March 27, 2015. She adds that the grounds for appeal are limited and technical. End of footnote 5. Legislators had to read the text in a closed room on an eyes-only basis without being allowed to take notes and were prohibited from proposing any amendments to soften the text. While the U.S. Trade Representative, USTR, technically allows access in practice, that right is empty. The congressman himself must read the text, no sending staffers or bringing experts allowed, and only staffers from the committees with direct oversight of trade bills, the Senate and Finance Committee, and the House Ways and Means Committee are allowed to join their bosses. The USTR insists that the congressman specify what chapter he wants to review in advance. The USTR then insists that the negotiator of those chapters be present. Since those negotiators travel, it usually takes three or four weeks to find a convenient time. Countries rejecting this attack on national sovereignty were to be isolated by trade and financial sanctions. U.S. diplomats assumed that this threat would enable the United States to repeat the degree of control that it had achieved after World War II when Europe was hardly in a position to go it alone. And, as indicated above, an unstated byproduct of the TTP and TTIP would be to help the U.S. balance of payments by maximizing the remission of profits of U.S. and other foreign investors. But the United States no longer is the essential nation. In the face of its chronic balance of payments deficits and its military and trade policy demands on its allies, many nations are seeing their trade and investment opportunities to lie more with China, Russia, and other countries growing faster than the United States yet which U.S. diplomacy treats as enemies. Donald Trump won the 2016 presidential election 
in large part by opposing the TPP and promising to replace free trade with protectionism. He carried the flyover states, America's rust belt of closed-down factories whose voters believed that only a radical outsider could revive industrial employment. His Democratic Party opponent, Hillary Clinton, had been a cheerleader for the TPP, and despite her claims that she no longer supported it, few voters believed that she was sincere, especially after she dismissed Trump's supporters as deplorables. What Trump opposed in the TPP was not its pro-corporate ISDS. Dismantling public regulatory authority was the program of his own Republican administration after all. But seeing that there was no way for the United States to compete internationally under free trade rules, he blamed the nation's deindustrialization largely on the free trade policies of the Clinton and Obama administrations. How could the United States compete in industrial manufacturing under free trade conditions, given the high costs that its labor force had to pay each month? Obamacare had increased the cost of health insurance, drugs, and medical care to 18% of U.S. GDP. The Federal Housing Authority guaranteed bank mortgages absorbing up to 43% of the home buyer's income, and most Americans were deeply in debt. Trump withdrew America from the TPP and from the TTIP negotiations still underway, and promised to revive industry by imposing protective tariffs and that America would win every trade deal it made with foreign countries. Using the slogan, Fair Trade, Not Free Trade, his nationalist policy was directed mainly against China, and most of his actions were illegal under international law, but even so, China's trade surplus kept on increasing. The military, financial, medical insurance, and real estate overhead had imposed such high public and private sector costs that it rendered the American economy uncompetitive, well beyond the ability of tariffs, quotas, and sanctions to overcome. Who is being isolated from whom? To U.S. global strategists, it does not really matter whether Russia, China, Venezuela, and other sanctioned nations were or are socialist or capitalist. What matters is that they want policy independence and to keep the fruits of their natural resource wealth, industry, and labor at home. That is why the Obama administration sought to isolate China from other Asian economies by denying it membership in the TPP in 2016 and tariff favoritism by the TTIP. Excluding the USSR, Cuba, and other countries seeking an independent path from the U.S.-centered free world has been the essence of the Cold War. Instead of trying to buy off socialist or state capitalist economies with aid, they were marginalized by trade and investment exclusion, sanctions, and, where necessary, military force or sponsorship of coups, as in Guatemala, Iran, Vietnam, Indonesia, the Congo, Chile, and its Latin American neighbors. But as in a Greek tragedy, U.S. tactics have now created just what its strategists feared, the heavy-handed attempts to block Russian gas sales and Chinese Huawei, TikTok, and 5G high-technology exports to Europe and other countries have obliged 
China, and Russia to take the lead in creating a de-dollarized system and attracting European and third world countries out of the confrontational U.S. orbit. By 2014, China's foreign currency reserves reached $4 trillion. That enabled it to initiate a vast Belt and Road Initiative westward to Europe as the basis for its own trade and monetary diplomacy. With the prospect of China joining with neighboring economies to form a new critical mass, the United States found itself becoming no longer indispensable, having little to offer in the way of exports of either products or, in the face of the dollar glut, capital. Its main leverage was asymmetrical warfare, such as threatening to destabilize Russia's financial system by cutting it off from the global swift bank clearing mechanism. That threat of acting as economic wrecker served as a warning to other countries to protect their financial systems by conducting as much of their trade as possible in non-dollar currencies so as to avoid interfacing with banks subject to U.S. political sanctions. Likewise, America's regime change in Libya and attempts at such in Venezuela and the outright theft of Libyan gold holdings and Venezuela's official gold holdings at the Bank of England led foreign countries to fear U.S. repudiation of their own dollar holdings and gold deposited in the New York Federal Reserve. In 2020, Germany began scheduling air cargo flights to start repatriating its official gold holdings from the vaults of the New York Fed. Then, in December 2020, just before President Biden was to take office, Europe signed a trade and banking agreement with China. Incoming U.S. officials were simply ignored when they asked Europe to hold off on the agreement. What Europe wanted was opportunities to trade and invest profitably with China, Russia, and eventually Iran. Spearheaded by German business, Europe so far has rejected the ongoing U.S. attempt to block Russia's Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. The United States has nothing to offer as a substitute but higher-priced liquid natural gas, LNG which would require the construction of vast new port terminals to replace lower-priced Russian supply. Meanwhile, U.S. sanctions intended to isolate Russia have had the effect of protecting its agriculture and industry, accelerating its rebuilding after the destructive neoliberal 1990s. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization, SCO, has expanded to include Iran, and is reaching out to absorb other countries via China's Belt and Road Initiative, with its own alternatives to the IMF and World Bank. On November 15, 2020, China sponsored the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP, signed by 10 Southeast Asian ASEAN member states, plus five major Asia-Pacific nations, including Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand. The TPP's anti-government ISDS clauses had disappeared. The incoming Democratic Biden-Harris administration in 2021 continued and indeed intensified the U.S. hostility toward Russia, signaled by an article that Mr. Biden wrote in Foreign Affairs in January 2020, promising that his incoming foreign policy agenda will place the United States at the head of the table. Commenting on how this had the effect of isolating the United States, the Financial Times noted that even the normally docile European Union is pressing ahead with plans to increase regulation and taxation of U.S. tech groups such as Google and Amazon, which the Biden administration hoped to promote to consolidate U.S. technological hegemony.
Footnote 6. Gideon Rockman. Biden's Flawed Plan for World Leadership. Financial Times, November 17th, 2020. End of footnote 6. By sanctioning one nation after another, America is isolating itself. And by requiring preconditions known to be unacceptable to Iran, Biden effectively announced that he had no intention of rejoining the Iranian treaty that Trump had broken. In any case, Congress has the final say in approving all final treaties and refuses to subject itself to any international rule of law not approved and usually drawn up by its own political donors and corporate lobbyists. That is why President Obama never dared submit the Iranian treaty to Congress in the first place. That also helps explain why Vladimir Putin finally threw up his hands and has said on numerous occasions that the United States is no longer agreement-capable. At issue is just who is excluding whom. As Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov summarized matters in response to American sanctions, we have realized that we must rely only on ourselves. No, we do not want to self-isolate. We want to take advantage of the International Division of Labor. But if someone is saying that there will be competition, but we will be cut off here, here, and also there, what kind of a reliable partner are you then? Footnote 7. Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's interview with the Solyov Live YouTube channel, February 12, 2021. For the URL, please see page 445 of the text. End of footnote 7. Matters are complicated by the degree to which Western European governments are acting as puppets of NATO and U.S. belligerents. In response to a question over whether Russia was heading for a breach with the EU, Mr. Lavrov replied, We believe we would be ready for this. We are neighbors. Speaking collectively, they are our largest trade and investment partner. Many EU companies operate here. There are hundreds or even thousands of joint ventures. When a business benefits both sides, we will continue. I am sure that we have become fully self-sufficient in the defense sphere. We must also attain the same position in the economy. To be able to act accordingly if we see again, we have seen this more than once, that sanctions are imposed in a sphere where they can create risks for our economy, including in the most sensitive areas, such as the supply of component parts. We don't want to be isolated from the world, but we must be prepared for this. If you want peace, prepare for war. A multipolar, de-dollarized economy. Britain and continental Europe after World War II recognized that they were being turned into economic dependencies, but made no attempt to create an alternative system. In addition to lacking the critical mass necessary to go it alone, they held to a deep ideological belief that creditors had a natural right to set the rules of international trade, investment, and diplomacy and they dreamed that the United States somehow would act in the interests of the world as a whole, not in a selfish nationalistic way. Europe hoped that as the world's major creditor, the United States would find its self-interest to lie in helping everyone grow, peacefully. That illusion no longer exists. Now that the dust is settling, foreign countries are asking themselves just what the United States has to offer. It has agricultural exports, but fights to prevent other countries from growing their own food in competition with U.S. farmers. It has Hollywood movies, popular culture, and monopolies with proprietary intellectual property rights in the form of information technology and pharmaceuticals. It had strong aircraft sales before Boeing put financial engineering to raise 
its stock price ahead of industrial engineering to build safe aircraft. The United States also has arms sales, which its dollar diplomacy and saber-rattling forces other countries to buy. But on balance, the U.S. economy and its military diplomacy have become a burden on the rest of the world, confronted by U.S. military threats that oblige other nations to invest in their own countervailing defense spending. The military threat is not likely to go away. It is endemic to America's political system. The power of what Donald Trump called the deep state was shown when his campaign promise to disengage the U.S. military from Afghanistan and similar lost causes proved to be his undoing. Trump envisioned a peace dividend to help revive the civilian economy by shifting government spending away from what President Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, but a constant flow of accusations accusing him of being a Russian agent did not abate even after they were disproven by the Mueller report, as Larry Wilkerson Chief of Staff to the U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell in the George W. Bush administration explained, Congress now is a wholly owned subsidiary of the military-industrial-you-name-it complex. That's how it gets its money. That's how it gets reelected. That's how it makes the whole system work nowadays. And when I say everything and everything else in it, I'm talking about universities. I'm talking about think tanks. I'm talking about this thing that Eisenhower said would pervade Every office place. Footnote 8. Larry Wilkerson. Interviewed by Paul J. TheAnalysis.News. February 5th, 2021. For full URL, please see page 447 of the text. End of footnote 8. Most deranging to the world is the neoliberal Rantier philosophy that America seeks to impose on other countries via the IMF and World Bank as levers to privatize, financialize, and promote corporate dominance over foreign governments. The IMF demands that debtor countries become more competitive by waging a class war against labor or else face economic sanctions and chaos. Austerity and anti-labor policies never enable a country to pay debts. They shrink and polarize economies. That was made clear after World War I when demanders of reparations debts pretended that Germany could squeeze out enough domestic tax money to pay in foreign currency. It was all junk economics. But to neoliberal creditor nations, self-destructive austerity for debtors is a lever to break down democratic and other political resistance to financialization and privatization sell-offs. By making debtor economies less able to pay, austerity makes them even more dependent on their creditors. The past century's experience shows that such dependency is the deliberate tactic of neoliberal financial power. Most recently, the IMF's loans to Greece ended up bankrupting it, and its many loans to Argentina led the IMF's demoralized staff to complain that despite the fact that every forecast they made showed that the debts couldn't be paid, the IMF continued to make them anyway usually at U.S. insistence, to support client oligarchies or to pay U.S. banks and vulture funds. The IMF has shown itself to be so incorrigible that it is easier and indeed necessary to begin afresh by creating a new institution. America's neoliberal opposition to foreign government autonomy and regulatory power is the essence of what is becoming Cold War 2.0 against China, post-Soviet Russia, and their fellow members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, SCO. The self-defeating U.S. trade sanctions against Russia and China 
are driving these and other nations into a position where their only defense is to do what Britain and the rest of Europe could not do in 1945, create an alternative economic order with its own rules, and replace the dollar by negotiating their own mutual currency swaps, using gold, or both gold and swaps, together. Keynes proposed a multipolar international financial system at Bretton Woods in 1944. The Boncor was to be issued as fiat money by a global central bank making loans to countries that ran a balance of payments deficit so that they would not have to impose self-defeating austerity. But as Keynes himself noted, the time was not yet ripe for such a regime. Neither Britain and its empire nor Europe were prepared to accept any form of international money and credit not based on the U.S. dollar and U.S. gold holdings. Ultimately at issue today is how China and Russia can take the lead in creating an alternative aimed at minimizing the cost of living and doing business. At the national level, that requires rejecting financialization, its associated privatization, and a neoliberal tax favoritism for rentiers. The objective is best met by creating a domestic monetary system and a central bank policy promoting industrialization, public infrastructure investment, and the upgrading of labor, while taxing away rentier income. That is the opposite of U.S. demands to privatize infrastructure and to sell it off to rent-seekers. Internationally, a financial system is required that avoids the Treasury bill standard and the resulting U.S. free lunch, enabling the military adventurism and neoliberal demands of dollar diplomacy. To create such an alternative to the dollar area's Treasury bill standard and America's potential ability to impose financial sanctions at will and without regard for international law or treaties, China, Russia, and other countries are moving to replace dollars with gold and mutually holding each other's currencies. The use to some extent of gold as a means of settlement is desirable mainly to constrain U.S. and NATO military spending and indeed that of any future aspirant to global hegemony by forcing countries to deplete their monetary reserves as the price of military adventurism. A new international central bank created outside the U.S. diplomatic sphere also might create some version of what Keynes had proposed in his Fiat Bancor to finance trade deficits, but not military spending or other balance of payments drains. No doubt the United States will seek to resist such de-dollarization and the creation of an alternative international financial system not dependent on dollar credit and neoliberal financial philosophy, but America's increasingly belligerent threats of sanctions and regime change attempts have only accelerated the breakaway, and with its own financialized economy becoming seriously deindustrialized, it is difficult to see what U.S. diplomats can do short of war or regime change, except for asymmetrical warfare, by promoting a neoliberal ideology that celebrates economic polarization and rentier gains. That ideology and its academic economic cover story is rapidly losing its ability to persuade other countries to succumb to opening their economies to U.S. banks or foreign investors, taking over and privatizing the commanding heights of their economies, or indeed to let a domestic rentier class emerge from within their own finance, insurance, and real estate, fire, sector, and its associated monopolies. The looming global fracture is becoming a fight over the most basic organizing principles of economies. All successful economies throughout history have been mixed. What U.S. cold warriors depict as an economic rivalry 
between America and China is not really a competition between national economies. It is a global conflict of economic systems. At issue is what kind of economy the world is going to have. Will it be a privatized, Reaganized, Thatcherized, and financialized neoliberal economy organized by central planning in Wall Street, or will national governments maintain their policy independence and take their economic and social destiny into their own hands? The choices between a financialized world order that aims to privatize infrastructure and create monopoly rents for credit creation, transportation, education, healthcare, communications, prisons, and pension funding, as in the United States, or a mixed economy keeping basic infrastructure investments in the public domain to be subsidized so that their services can be provided at minimum cost or ideally freely while taxing away fire sector rentier income instead of giving it tax favoritism. The coming multipolar world will not be called a Chinese century or that of any other national economy because the epoch of unipolar dominance is over. Perhaps it simply will be the un-American century, picking up history that turned into a detour with the Great War and its long aftermath. End of epilogue. End of super-imperialism, the economic strategy of American empire, by Michael Hudson.